What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 73 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 73 The Promise It was, indeed, Maximilien Morel, who had passed a wretched existence since the previous day. With the instinct peculiar to lovers, he had anticipated after the return of Madame de Saint-Méran and the death of the Marquis that something would occur at Monsieur de Villefort's in connection with his attachment for Valentine. His presentiments were realized, as we shall see and his uneasy forebodings had goaded him pale and trembling to the gate under the chestnut trees. Valentine was ignorant of the cause of this sorrow and anxiety, and as it was not his accustomed hour for visiting her, she had gone to the spot simply by accident, or perhaps through sympathy. Morel called her, and she ran to the gate. "'You are here at this hour,' said she. "'Yes, my poor girl,' replied Morel. "'I come to bring and to hear bad tidings this is indeed a house of mourning said valentine speak maximilien although the cup of sorrow seems already full dear valentine said morel endeavouring to conceal his own emotion listen i entreat you what i am about to say is very serious when are you to be married i will tell you all said valentine from you i have nothing to conceal this morning the subject was introduced and my dear grandmother on whom i have depended as my only support not only declared herself favourable to it but is so anxious for it that they only await the arrival of monsieur d'epinay and the following day the contract will be signed a deep sigh escaped the young man who gazed long and mournfully at her he loved alas replied he it is dreadful thus to hear my condemnation from your own lips the sentence is passed and in a few hours will be executed it must be so and i will not endeavour to prevent it but since you say nothing remains but for monsieur de pinay to arrive that the contract may be signed 
and the following day you will be his. Tomorrow you will be engaged to Monsieur Depinay, for he came this morning to Paris. Oh! Valentine uttered a cry. I was at the house of Monte Cristo an hour since, said Morel. We were speaking, he of the sorrow your family had experienced, and I of your grief. When a carriage rolled into the courtyard, never till then had I placed any confidence in presentiments, but now I cannot help believing them. At the sound of that carriage I shuddered. Soon I heard steps on the staircase, which terrified me as much as the footsteps of the commander did Don Juan. The door at last opened. Albert de Morcerf entered first, and I began to hope my fears were vain when after him another young man advanced, and the Count exclaimed, "'Ah, here is the Baron Franz d'Epinay!' I summoned all my strength and courage to my support. Perhaps I turned pale and trembled, but certainly I smiled, and five minutes after I left, without having heard one word that had passed. "'Poor Maximilien,' murmured Valentine, valentine the time has arrived when you must answer me and remember my life depends on your answer what do you intend doing valentine held down her head she was overwhelmed listen said morel it is not the first time you have contemplated our present position which is a serious and urgent one I do not think it is a moment to give way to useless sorrow. Leave that for those who like to suffer at their leisure and indulge their grief in secret. There are such in the world, and God will doubtless reward them in heaven for their resignation on earth. But those who mean to contend must not lose one precious moment, but first return immediately the blow which fortune strikes. Do you intend to struggle against our ill-fortune? Tell me, Valentine, for it is that I came to know. Valentine trembled and looked at him with amazement. The idea of resisting her father, her grandmother, and all the family had never occurred to her. What do you say, Maximilien? asked Valentine. What do you mean by a struggle? Oh, it would be sacrilege. What? I resist my father's order and my dying grandmother's wish? Impossible! Morel started. You are too noble not to understand me, and you understand me so well that you already yield, dear Maximilien. No, no, I shall need all my strength to struggle with myself and support my grief in secret, as you say. But to grieve my father, to disturb my grandfather's last moments, never! "'You are right,' said Morel calmly. "'In what a tone you speak!' cried Valentine. "'I speak as one who admires you, mademoiselle.' "'Mademoiselle?' cried Valentine. "'Mademoiselle? Oh, selfish man! "'He sees me in despair and pretends he cannot understand me.' "'You mistake. I understand you perfectly. "'You will not oppose Monsieur Villefort.' You will not displease the marchioness, and tomorrow you will sign the contract which will bind you to your husband. But, mon Dieu, tell me, 
how can i do otherwise do not appeal to me mademoiselle i shall be a bad judge in such a case my selfishness will bind me replied morel whose low voice and clinched hands announced his growing desperation what would you have proposed maximilian had you found me willing to accede it is not for me to say you are wrong you must advise me what to do do you seriously ask my advice valentine certainly dear maximilian for if it is good i will follow it you know my devotion to you valentine said morel pushing aside a loose plank give me your hand in token of forgiveness of my anger my senses are confused and during the last hour the most extravagant thoughts have passed through my brain oh if you refuse my advice what do you advise said valentine raising her eyes to heaven and sighing i am free said maximilian and rich enough to support you i swear to make you my lawful wife before my lips even shall have approached your forehead you make me tremble said the young girl follow me said morel i will take you to my sister who is worthy also to be yours we will embark for algiers for england for america or if you prefer it retire to the country and only return to paris when our friends have reconciled your family valentine shook her head i feared it maximilian said she it is the counsel of a madman and i should be more mad than you did i not stop you at once with the word impossible impossible you will then submit to what fate decrees for you without even attempting to contend with it said morel sorrowfully yes if i die well valentine resumed maximilian i can only say again that you are right truly it is i who am mad and you prove to me that passion blinds the most well-meaning i appreciate your calm reasoning it is then understood that to-morrow you will be irrevocably promised to monsieur france d'epinay not only by that theatrical formality invented to heighten the effect of a comedy called the signature of the contract but your own will again you drive me to despair maximilian said valentine again you plunge the dagger into the wound what would you do tell me if your sister listened to such a proposition mademoiselle replied morel with a bitter smile i am selfish you have already said so and as a selfish man i think not of what others would do in my situation but of what i intend doing myself i think only that i have known you not a whole year from the day i first saw you all my hopes of happiness have been in securing your affection one day you acknowledged that you loved me and since that day my hope of future happiness has rested on obtaining you for to gain you would be life to me now i think no more i say only that fortune has turned against me i had thought to gain heaven and now i have lost it 
It is an everyday occurrence for a gambler to lose not only what he possesses, but also what he has not. Morel pronounced these words with perfect calmness. Valentine looked at him a moment with her large, scrutinizing eyes, endeavoring not to let Morel discover the grief which struggled in her heart. "'But, in a word, what are you going to do?' asked she. "'I am going to have the honour of taking my leave of you, mademoiselle, solemnly assuring you that I wish your life may be so calm, so happy, and so full occupied, that there may be no place for me, even in your memory.' "'Oh!' murmured Valentine. "'Adieu, Valentine. Adieu.' said Morel, bowing. "'Where are you going?' cried the young girl, extending a hand through the opening and seizing Maximilian by his coat, for she understood from her own agitated feelings that her lover's calmness could not be real. "'Where are you going?' "'I am going, that I may not bring fresh trouble into your family, and to set an example which every honest and devoted man situated as i am may follow before you leave me tell me what you are going to do maximilian the young man smiled sorrowfully speak speak said valentine i entreat you has your resolution changed valentine it cannot change unhappy man you know it must not cried the young girl then adieu valentine valentine shook the gate with a strength of which she could not have been supposed to be possessed as morel was going away and passing both her hands through the opening she clasped and wrung them i must know what you mean to do she said where are you going oh fear not said maximilian stopping at a short distance i do not intend to render another man responsible for the rigorous fate reserved for me. Another might threaten to seek Monsieur Franz, to provoke him and to fight with him. All that would be folly. What has Monsieur Franz to do with it? He saw me this morning for the first time, and has already forgotten he has seen me. He did not even know I existed when it was arranged by your two families that you should be united. I have no enmity against Monsieur Franz, and promise you the punishment shall not fall on him on whom then on me on you valentine oh heaven forbid woman is sacred the woman one loves is holy on yourself then unhappy man on yourself i am the only guilty person am i not said maximilian maximilian said valentine maximilian come back i entreat you he drew near with his sweet smile and but for his paleness one might have thought him in his usual happy mood listen my dear my adored valentine said he in his melodious and grave tone those who like us have never had a thought for which we need blush before the world such may read each other's hearts I never was romantic, and am no melancholy hero. I imitate neither Manfred nor Antony, but without words, protestations, or vows, my life has entwined itself with yours. You leave me, 
and you are right in doing so. I repeat it, you are right, but in losing you, I lose my life. The moment you leave me, Valentine, I am alone in the world. My sister is happily married. Her husband is only my brother-in-law, that is, a man whom the ties of social life alone attach to me. No one then longer needs my useless life. This is what I shall do. I will wait until the very moment you are married, for I will not lose the shadow of one of those unexpected chances which are sometimes reserved for us, since Monsieur Franz may, after all, die before that time. A thunderbolt may fall even on the altar as you approach. Nothing appears impossible to one condemned to die, and miracles appear quite reasonable when his escape from death is concerned. I will, then, wait until the last moment, and when my misery is certain, irremediable, hopeless, I will write a confidential letter to my brother-in-law, another to the prefect of police, to acquaint them with my intention, and at the corner of some wood, on the brink of some abyss, on the bank of some river, I will put an end to my existence, as certainly as I am the son of the most honest man who ever lived in France. Valentine trembled convulsively. She loosened her hold of the gate. Her arms fell by her side, and two large tears rolled down her cheeks. The young man stood before her, sorrowful and resolute. "'Oh, for pity's sake!' said she. "'You will live, will you not?' No, on my honour, said Maximilian, but that will not affect you. You have done your duty, and your conscience will be at rest. Valentine fell on her knees, and pressed her almost bursting heart. Maximilian, said she, Maximilian, my friend, my brother on earth, my true husband in heaven, I entreat you, do as I do. Live in suffering. Perhaps one day we may be united. Adieu, Valentine, repeated Morel. My God, said Valentine, raising both her hands to heaven with a sublime expression, I have done my utmost to remain a submissive daughter. I have begged, entreated, implored. He has regarded neither my prayers my entreaties nor my tears. It is done, cried she, willing away her tears and resuming her firmness. I am resolved not to die of remorse, but rather of shame. Live, Maximilian, and I will be yours. Say when shall it be. Speak, command, I will obey. Morel, who had already gone some few steps away, again returned, and pale with joy, extended both hands towards Valentine through the opening. Valentine, said he, dear Valentine, you must not speak thus, rather let me die. Why should I obtain you by violence if our love is mutual? Is it from mere humanity you bid me live? I would rather die. Truly, murmured Valentine, who on this earth cares for me? if he does not. 
who has consoled me in my sorrow but he on whom do my hopes rest on whom does my bleeding heart repose on him on him always on him yes you are right maximilian i will follow you i will leave the paternal home i will give up all oh ungrateful girl that i am cried valentine sobbing i will give up all even my dear old grandfather whom i had nearly forgotten no said maximilian you shall not leave him monsieur noirtier has evinced you say a kind feeling towards me well before you leave tell him all his consent would be your justification in god's sight as soon as we are married he shall come and live with us instead of one child he shall have two you have told me how you talk to him and how he answers you i shall very soon learn that language by signs valentine i promise you solemnly that instead of despair it is happiness that awaits us oh see maximilian see the power you have over me you almost make me believe you and yet what you tell me is madness for my father will curse me he is inflexible he will never pardon me now listen to me maximilian if by artifice by entreaty by accident in short if by any means i can delay this marriage will you wait yes i promise you as faithfully as you have promised me that this horrible marriage shall not take place and that if you are dragged before a magistrate or a priest you will refuse i promise you by all that is most sacred to me in the world namely by my mother we will wait then said morel yes we will wait replied valentine who revived at these words there are so many things which may save unhappy beings such as we are i rely on you valentine said morel all you do will be well done only if they disregard your prayers if your father and madame de saint maron insist that monsieur de d'epinay should be called to-morrow to sign the contract then you have my promise maximilian instead of signing i will go to you and we will fly but from this moment until then let us not tempt providence let us not see each other it is a miracle it is a providence that we have not been discovered if we were surprised if it were known that we met thus we should have no further resource you are right valentine but how shall i ascertain from the notary monsieur deschamps i know him and for myself i will write to you depend on me i dread this marriage maximilian as much as you thank you my adored valentine thank you that is enough when once i know the hour i will hasten to this spot you can easily get over this fence with my assistance a carriage will await us at the gate in which you will accompany me to my sisters there living retired or mingling in society as you wish we shall be unable to use our power to resist oppression and not suffer ourselves to be put to death like sheep which only defend themselves by sighs yes said valentine 
i will now acknowledge you are right maximilian and now are you satisfied with your betrothal said the young girl sorrowfully my adored valentine words cannot express one half of my satisfaction valentine had approached or rather had placed her lips so near the fence that they nearly touched those of morel which were pressed against the other side of the cold and inexorable barrier adieu until we meet again said valentine tearing herself away i shall hear from you yes thanks thanks dear love adieu the sound of a kiss was heard and valentine fled through the avenue morel listened to catch the last sound of her dress brushing the branches and of her footstep on the gravel then raised his eyes with an ineffable smile of thankfulness to heaven for being permitted to be thus loved and then also disappeared the young man returned home and waited all the evening and all the next day without getting any message it was only on the following day at about ten o'clock in the morning as he was starting to call on monsieur deschamps the notary that he received from the postman a small billet which he knew to be from valentine although he had not before seen her writing it was to this effect tears entreaties prayers have availed me nothing yesterday for two hours i was at the church of saint philippe du roule and for two hours i prayed most fervently heaven is as inflexible as man and the signature of the contract is fixed for this evening at nine o'clock i have but one promise and but one heart to give that promise is pledged to you that art is also yours this evening then at a quarter to nine at the gate your betrothed valentine de villefort p s my poor grandmother gets worse and worse yesterday her fever amounted to delirium today her delirium is almost madness you'll be very kind to me will you not morel to make me forget my sorrow in leaving her thus i think it's kept a secret from grandpapa noirtier that the contract is to be signed this evening morel went also to the notary who confirmed the news that the contract was to be signed that evening then he went to call on monte cristo and heard still more france had been to announce the ceremony and madame de villefort had also written to beg the count to excuse her not inviting him the death of monsieur de saint meran and the dangerous illness of his widow would cast a gloom over the meeting which she would regret should be shared by the count whom she wished every happiness the day before france had been presented to madame de saint meran who had left her bed to receive him but had been obliged to return to it immediately after it is easy to suppose that morel's agitation would not escape the count's penetrating eye monte cristo was more affectionate than ever indeed his manner was so kind that several times morel was on the point of telling him all but he recalled the promise he had made to valentine and kept his secret the young man read valentine's letter twenty times in the course of the day it was her first and on what an occasion each time he read it he renewed his vow to make her happy how great is the power of a woman who has made so courageous a resolution what devotion does she deserve 
from him for whom she has sacrificed everything. How ought she really to be supremely loved? She becomes at once a queen and a wife, and it is impossible to thank and love her sufficiently. Morel longed intensely for the moment when he should hear Valentine say, Here I am, Maximilian. Come and help me. He had arranged everything for her escape. Two ladders were hidden in the clover field. A cabriolet was ordered for Maximilian alone, without a servant, without lights. At the turning of the first street, they would light the lamps, as it would be foolish to attract the notice of the police by too many precautions. Occasionally he shuddered. He thought of the moment when, from the top of that wall, he should protect the descent of his dear Valentine, pressing in his arms for the first time her, of whom he had yet only kissed the delicate hand. When the afternoon arrived, and he felt that the hour was drawing near, he wished for solitude. His agitation was extreme. A simple question from a friend would have irritated him. He shut himself in his room and tried to read. But his eye glanced over the page without understanding a word, and he threw away the book, and for the second time sat down to sketch his plan, the ladders and the fence. At length the hour drew near. Never did a man deeply in love allow the clocks to go on peacefully. Morel tormented his so effectually that they struck eight at half-past six. He then said, "'It is time to start. The signature was indeed fixed to take place at nine o'clock. But perhaps Valentine will not wait for that.' Consequently, Morel, having left the Rue Melee at half-past eight by his timepiece, entered the clover field while the clock of Saint-Philippe-du-Roule was striking eight. The horse and cabriolet were concealed behind a small ruin, where Morel had often waited. The night gradually drew on, and the foliage in the garden assumed a deeper hue. Then Morel came out from his hiding-place with a beating heart, and looked through the small opening in the gate. There was yet no one to be seen. The clock struck half-past eight, and still another half-hour was passed in waiting, while Morel walked to and fro, and gazed more and more frequently through the opening. The garden became darker still, but in the darkness he looked in vain for the white dress, and in the silence he vainly listened for the sound of footsteps. The house, which was discernible through the trees, remained in darkness, and gave no indication that so important an event as the signature of a marriage contract was going on. Morel looked at his watch, which wanted a quarter to ten. But soon, the same clock he had already heard strike two or three times, rectified the error by striking half-past nine. This was already half an hour past the time Valentine had fixed. It was a terrible moment for the young man. The slightest rustling of the foliage, the least whistling of the wind attracted his attention, and drew the perspiration to his brow. Then he tremblingly fixed his ladder, and, not to lose a moment, placed his foot on the first step. Amidst all these alternations of hope and fear, the clock struck ten. "'It is impossible,' said Maximilian, "'that the signing of a contract should occupy so long a time without unexpected interruptions. I have weighed all the chances, calculated the time required for all the forms. Something must have happened.' and then he walked rapidly to and fro and pressed his burning forehead against the fence 
had Valentine fainted? Or had she been discovered and stopped in her flight? These were the only obstacles which appeared possible to the young man. The idea that her strength had failed her in attempting to escape, and that she had fainted in one of the paths, was the one that most impressed itself upon his mind. "'In that case,' said he, "'I should lose her, and by my own fault.' He dwelt on this idea for a moment. Then it appeared reality. He even thought he could perceive something on the ground at a distance. He ventured to call, and it seemed to him that the wind wafted back an almost inarticulate sigh. At last the half-hour struck. It was impossible to wait longer. His temples throbbed violently. His eyes were growing dim. He passed one leg over the wall, and in a moment leapt down on the other side. He was on Villefort's premises, had arrived there by scaling the wall. What might be the consequences? However, he had not ventured thus far to draw back. He followed a short distance close under the wall, then crossed a path, hid, entered a clump of trees. In a moment he had passed through them and could see the house distinctly. Then Morel saw that he had been right in believing that the house was not illuminated. Instead of lights at every window, as is customary on days of ceremony, he saw only a grey mass, which was veiled also by a cloud, which at that moment obscured the moon's feeble light. A light moved rapidly from time to time past three windows of the second floor. These three windows were in Madame de saint Meron's room. Another remained motionless behind some red curtains which were in Madame de Villefort's bedroom. Morel guessed all this. So many times, in order to follow Valentine, in thought at every hour in the day, had he made her describe the whole house, that without having seen it, he knew it all. This darkness and silence alarmed Morel still more than Valentine's absence had done. Almost mad with grief, and determined to venture everything in order to see Valentine once more, and be certain of the misfortune he feared, Morel gained the edge of the clump of trees and was going to pass as quickly as possible through the flower-garden, when the sound of a voice, still at some distance, but which was borne upon the wind, reached him. At this sound, as he was already partially exposed to view, he stepped back and concealed himself completely, remaining perfectly motionless. He had formed his resolution. If it was Valentine alone, he would speak as she passed. If she was accompanied, and he could not speak, still he should see her and know that she was safe if they were strangers he would listen to their conversation and might understand something of this hitherto incomprehensible mystery the moon had just then escaped from behind the cloud which had concealed it and morel saw villefort come out upon the steps followed by a gentleman in black they descended and advanced towards the clump of trees and Morel soon recognized the other gentleman as Dr. Davrigny. The young man, seeing them approach, drew back mechanically until he found himself stopped by a sycamore tree in the center of the clump. There he was compelled to remain. Soon the two gentlemen stopped also. "'Ah, my dear doctor,' said the procureur, "'heaven declares itself against my house. What a dreadful death!' what a blow seek not to console me 
alas nothing can alleviate so great a sorrow the wound is too deep and too fresh dead dead the cold sweat sprang to the young man's brow and his teeth chattered who could be dead in that house which villefort himself had called accursed my dear monsieur de villefort replied the doctor with a tone which redoubled the terror of the young man i have not led you here to console you on the contrary what can you mean asked the procureur alarmed i mean that behind the misfortune which has just happened to you there is another perhaps still greater can it be possible murmured villefort clasping his hands what are you going to tell me are we quite alone my friend yes quite but why all these precautions because i have a terrible secret to communicate to you said the doctor let us sit down villefort fell rather than seated himself the doctor stood before him with one hand placed on his shoulder morel horrified supported his head with one hand and with the other pressed his heart lest its beating should be heard dead dead repeated he within himself and he felt as if he were also dying speak doctor i am listening said villefort strike i am prepared for everything madame de saint meran was doubtless advancing in years but she enjoyed excellent health morel began again to breathe freely which he had not done during the last ten minutes grief has consumed her said villefort yes grief doctor after living forty years with the marquis it is not grief my dear villefort said the doctor grief may kill although it rarely does and never in a day never in an hour never in ten minutes villefort answered nothing he simply raised his head which had been cast down before and looked at the doctor with amazement were you present during the last struggle asked monsieur de d'avrigny i was replied the procureur you begged me not to leave did you notice the symptoms of the disease to which madame de saint meran has fallen a victim i did madame de saint meran had three successive attacks at intervals of some minutes each one more serious than the former when you arrived madame de saint meran had already been panting for breath some minutes she then had a fit which i took to be simply a nervous attack and it was only when i saw her raise herself in the bed and her limbs and neck appeared stiffened that i became really alarmed then i understood from your countenance there was more to fear than i had thought this crisis passed i endeavored to catch your eye but could not you held her hand you were feeling her pulse and the second fit came on before you had turned towards me this was more terrible than the first the same nervous movements were repeated and the mouth contracted and turned purple and at the third she expired at the end of the first attack i discovered symptoms of tetanus you confirm my opinion yes before others replied the doctor but now we are alone what are you going to say oh spare me 
that the symptoms of tetanus and poisoning by vegetable substances are the same monsieur de villefort started from his seat then in a moment fell down again silent and motionless morel knew not if he were dreaming or awake listen said the doctor i know the full importance of the statement i have just made and the disposition of the man to whom i have made it do you speak to me as a magistrate or as a friend asked villefort as a friend and only as a friend at this moment the similarity in the symptoms of tetanus and poisoning by vegetable substances is so great that were i obliged to affirm by oath what i have now stated i should hesitate i therefore repeat to you i speak not to a magistrate but to a friend and to that friend i say during the three quarters of an hour that the struggle continued i watched the convulsions and the death of madame de saint meran and am thoroughly convinced that not only did her death proceed from poison but i could also specify the poison can it be possible the symptoms are marked do you see sleep broken by nervous spasms excitation of the brain topper of the nerve centers madame de saint meran succumbed to a powerful dose of brucine or of strychnine which by some mistake perhaps has been given to her villefort seized the doctor's hand oh it, it is impossible said he i must be dreaming it is frightful to hear such things from such a man as you tell me i entreat you my dear doctor that you may be deceived doubtless i may but 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 i do not think so have pity on me doctor so many dreadful things have happened to me lately that i am on the verge of a madness has anyone besides me seen madame de saint meran no has anything been sent for from a chemist that i have not examined nothing had madame de saint meran any enemies not to my knowledge would her death affect anyone's interest it could not indeed my daughter is her only heiress valentine alone or oh, if such a thought could present itself i would stab myself to punish my heart for having for one instant harbored it indeed my dear friend said monsieur d'avigny i would not accuse anyone i speak only of an accident you understand of a mistake but whether accident or mistake the fact is there it is on my conscience and compels me to speak aloud to you make inquiry of whom how of what may not barois the old servant have made a mistake and have given madame de saint meran a dose prepared for his master for my father yes but how could a dose prepared for monsieur noirtier poison madame de saint meran nothing is more simple you know poisons become remedies in certain diseases of which paralysis is one for instance having tried every other remedy to restore movement and speech to monsieur noirtier i resolved to try one last means and for three months i have been giving him brucine 
so that in the last dose I ordered for him there were six grains. This quantity, which is perfectly safe to administer to the paralyzed frame of Monsieur Noirtier, which has become gradually accustomed to it, would be sufficient to kill another person. My dear doctor, there is no communication between Monsieur Noirtier's apartment and that of Madame de Saint-Méran, and Barrois never entered my mother-in-law's room. In short, doctor, although I know you to be the most conscientious man in the world, and although I place the utmost reliance on you, I want, notwithstanding my conviction, to believe this axiom, errare humanum est. Is there one of my brethren in whom you have equal confidence with myself? Why do you ask me that? What do you wish? Send for him. I will tell him what I have seen, and we will consult together and examine the body. And you will find traces of poison? No, I did not say of poison. But we can prove what was the state of the body. We shall discover the cause of her sudden death, and we shall say, dear Villefort, if this thing has been caused by negligence, watch over your servants. If from hatred, watch your enemies. What do you propose to me, Davrigny? said Villefort in despair. So soon as another is admitted into our secret, an inquest will become necessary, and an inquest in my house. Impossible! Still, continued the procureur, looking at the doctor with uneasiness, if you wish it, if you demand it, why, then it shall be done. But, doctor, you see me already so grieved. How can I introduce into my house so much scandal after so much sorrow? My wife and my daughter would die of it. And I, doctor, you know a man does not arrive at the post I occupy. One has not been king's attorney twenty-five years without having amassed a tolerable number of enemies. Mine are numerous. Let this affair be talked of. It will be a triumph for them, which will make them rejoice and cover me with shame. Pardon me, doctor, these worldly ideas... Were you a priest, I should not dare to tell you, but you are a man, and you know mankind. Doctor, pray recall your words. You have said nothing, have you? My dear Monsieur de Villefort, replied the doctor, my first duty is to humanity. I would have saved Madame de Saint-Méran, if science could have done it, but she is dead, and my duty regards the living. Let us bury this terrible secret in the deepest recesses of our hearts. I am willing, if anyone should suspect this, that my silence on the subject should be imputed to my ignorance. Meanwhile, sir, watch always. Watch carefully, for perhaps the evil may not stop here. And when you have found the culprit, if you find him, I will say to you, you are a magistrate. Do as you will. I thank you, doctor, said Villefort with indescribable joy. I never had a better friend than you. And as if he feared Dr. Davrigny would recall his promise, he hurried him towards the house. When they were gone, Morel ventured out from under the trees, and the moon shone upon his face, which was so pale it might have been taken for that of a ghost. 
i am manifestly protected in a most wonderful but most terrible manner said he but valentine poor girl how will she bear so much sorrow as he thought thus he looked alternately at the window with red curtains and the three windows with white curtains the light had almost disappeared from the former doubtless madame de villefort had just put out her lamp and the night lamp alone reflected its dull light on the window at the extremity of the building on the contrary he saw one of the three windows open a wax light placed on the mantelpiece threw some of its pale rays without and a shadow was seen for one moment on the balcony morel shuddered he thought he heard a sob it cannot be wondered at that his mind generally so courageous but now disturbed by the two strongest human passions love and fear was weakened even to the indulgence of superstitious thoughts although it was impossible that valentine should see him hidden as he was he thought he heard the shadow at the window call him his disturbed mind told him so this double error became an irresistible reality and by one of the incomprehensible transports of youth he bounded from his hiding-place and with two strides at the risk of being seen at the risk of alarming valentine at the risk of being discovered by some exclamation which might escape the young girl he crossed the flower-garden which by the light of the moon resembled a large white lake and having passed the rows of orange trees which extended in front of the house he reached the step ran quickly up and pushed the door which opened without offering any resistance valentine had not seen him her eyes raised towards heaven were watching a silvery cloud gliding over the asia its form that of a shadow mounting towards heaven her poetic and excited mind pictured it as the soul of her grandmother meanwhile morel had traversed the anteroom and found the staircase which being carpeted prevented his approach being heard and he had regained that degree of confidence that the presence of monsieur de villefort even would not have alarmed him he was quite prepared for any such encounter he would at once approach valentine's father and acknowledge all begging villefort to pardon and sanction the love which united two fond and loving hearts morel was mad happily he did not meet anyone now especially did he find the description valentine had given of the interior of the house useful to him he arrived safely at the top of the staircase and while he was feeling his way a sob indicated the direction he was to take he turned back a door partly opened enabled him to see his road and to hear the voice of one in sorrow he pushed the door open and entered at the other end of the room under a white sheet which covered it lay the corpse still more alarming to morel since the account he had so unexpectedly overheard by its side on her knees and with her head buried in the cushion of an easy chair was valentine trembling and sobbing her hands extended above her head clasped and stiff she had turned from the window which remained open and was praying in accents that would have affected the most unfeeling her words were rapid incoherent unintelligible for the burning weight of grief almost stopped her utterance the moon shining through the open blinds made the lamp appear to burn paler 
and cast a sepulchral hue over the whole scene morel could not resist this he was not exemplary for piety he was not easily impressed but valentine suffering weeping wringing her hands before him was more than he could bear in silence he sighed and whispered a name and the head bathed in tears and pressed on the velvet cushion of the chair a head like that of a magdalen by correggio was raised and turned toward him valentine perceived him without betraying the least surprise a heart overwhelmed with one great grief is insensible to minor emotions morel held out his hand to her valentine as her only apology for not having met him pointed to the corpse under the sheet and began to sob again neither dared for some time to speak in that room they hesitated to break the silence which death seemed to impose at length valentine ventured my dear friend said she how came you here alas i would say you are welcome had not death opened the way for you into this house valentine said morel with a trembling voice i had waited since half-past eight and did not see you come i became uneasy leapt the wall found my way through the garden when voices conversing about the fatal event what voices asked valentine morel shuddered as he thought of the conversation of the doctor and monsieur de villefort and he thought he could see through the sheet the extended hands the stiff neck and the purple lips your servants said he were repeating the whole of the sorrowful story from them i learned it all but it was risking the failure of our plan to come up here love forgive me replied morel i will go away no said valentine you might meet someone stay but if anyone should come here the young girl shook her head no one will come said she do not fear there is our safeguard pointing to the bed but what has become of monsieur d'epinay replied morel monsieur france arrived to sign the contract just as my dear grandmother was dying alas said morel with a feeling of selfish joy for he thought this death would cause the wedding to be postponed indefinitely but what redoubles my sorrow continued the young girl as if this feeling was to receive its immediate punishment is that the poor old lady on her deathbed requested that the marriage might take place as soon as possible she also thinking to protect me was acting against me hark said morel they both listened steps were distinctly heard in the corridor and on the stairs it is my father who has just left his study to accompany the doctor to the door added morel how did you know it is the doctor asked valentine astonished i imagined it must be said morel valentine looked at the young man they heard the street door close then monsieur de villefort locked the garden door and returned upstairs he stopped a moment in the ante-room as if hesitating whether to turn to his own apartment or into madame de saint merans morel concealed himself behind a door valentine remained motionless grief seeming to deprive her of all fear 
Monsieur de Villefort passed on to his own room. Now, said Valentine, you can neither go out by the front door nor by the garden. Morel looked at her with astonishment. There is but one way left that is safe, she said. It is through my grandfather's room. She rose. Come, she added. Where? asked Maximilian. To my grandfather's room. I? In Monsieur Noirtier's apartment? Yes. Can you mean it, Valentine? I have long wished it. He is my only remaining friend, and we both need his help. Come. Be careful, Valentine, said Morel, hesitating to comply with the young girl's wishes. I now see my error. I acted like a madman in coming here. Are you sure are you more reasonable? Yes, said Valentine, and I have but one scruple, that of leaving my dear grandmother's remains which I had undertaken to watch. Valentine, said Morel, death is in itself sacred. Yes, said Valentine, besides, it will not be for long. She then crossed the corridor and led the way down a narrow staircase to Monsieur Noirtier's room. Morel followed her on tiptoe. At the door they found the old servant. Barois, said Valentine, shut the door and let no one come in. She passed first. Noirtier, seated in his chair, and listening to every sound, was watching the door. He saw Valentine, and his eye brightened. There was something grave and solemn in the approach of the young girl which struck the old man, and immediately his bright eye began to interrogate. "'Dear grandfather,' said she hurriedly, "'you know poor grandmamma died an hour since, and now I have no friend in the world but you.' His expressive eyes evinced the greatest tenderness. "'To you alone, then, may I confide my sorrows and my hopes.' The paralytic motioned, "'Yes.' Valentine took Maximilian's hand. "'Look attentively, then, at this gentleman.' The old man fixed his scrutinizing gaze with slight astonishment on Morel. "'It is Monsieur Maximilian Morel,' said she, "'the son of that good merchant of Marseilles, whom you doubtless recollect.' "'Yes,' said the old man. "'He brings an irreproachable name, which Maximilian is likely to render glorious, since at thirty years of age.' He is a captain, an officer of the Legion of Honour. The old man signified that he recollected him. Well, grandpapa, said Valentine, kneeling before him and pointing to Maximilian, I love him and will be only his. Were I compelled to marry another, I would destroy myself. The eyes of the paralytic expressed a multitude of tumultuous thoughts. You like Monsieur Maximilian Morel, do you not, grandpapa? asked Valentine. Yes. And you will protect us, who are your children, against the will of my father. Noirtier cast an intelligent glance at Morel, as if to say, Perhaps I may. Maximilian understood him. Mademoiselle, said he, you have a sacred duty to fulfil in your deceased grandmother's room. Will you allow me the honour of a few minutes' conversation with Monsieur Noirtier? That is it said the old man's eye. Then he looked anxiously at Valentine. "'Do you fear you will not understand?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, we have so often spoken of you, that he knows exactly how I talk to you.' Then turning to Maximilian with an adorable smile, 
although shaded by sorrow. "'He knows everything I know,' said she. Valentina rose, placed a chair for Morel, requested Barois not to admit anyone, and having tenderly embraced her grandfather and sorrowfully taken leave of Morel, she went away. To prove to Noirtier that he was in Valentine's confidence and knew all their secrets, Morel took the dictionary, a pen, and some paper, and placed them all on a table where there was a light. "'But first, said Morel, "'allow me, sir, to tell you who I am, how much I love Mademoiselle Valentine, and what are my designs respecting her.' Noirtier made a sign that he would listen. It was an imposing sight to witness this old man, apparently a mere useless burden, becoming the sole protector, support, and adviser of the lovers, who were both young, beautiful, and strong. His remarkably noble and austere expression struck Morel, who began his story with trembling. He related the manner in which he had become acquainted with Valentine, and how he had loved her, and that Valentine, in her solitude and her misfortune, had accepted the offer of his devotion. He told him his birth, his position, his fortune, and more than once, when he consulted the look of the paralytic, that look answered, "'That is good. Proceed.' "'And now,' said Morel, when he had finished the first part of his recital, "'now I have told you of my love and my hopes. May I inform you of my intentions?' "'Yes,' signified the old man. "'This was our resolution.' A cabriolet was in waiting at the gate in which I intended to carry off Valentine to my sister's house, to marry her, and to wait respectfully Monsieur de Villefort's pardon. No, said Noirtier. We must not do so? No. You do not sanction our project? No. There is no other way, said Morel. The old man's interrogative eye said, What? I will go, continued Maximilian. I will seek Monsieur Franz d'Epinay. I am happy to be able to mention this in Mademoiselle de Villefort's absence, and will conduct myself toward him so as to compel him to challenge me. Noirtier's look continued to interrogate. You wish to know what I will do? Yes. I will find him as I told you. I will tell him the ties which bind me to Mademoiselle Valentine. If he be a sensible man, he will prove it by renouncing of his own accord the hand of his betrothed, and will secure my friendship and love until death. If he refuse, either through interest or ridiculous pride, after I have proved to him that he would be forcing my wife from me, that Valentine loves me and will have no other, I will fight him, give him every advantage, and I shall kill him, or he will kill me. If I am victorious, I will not marry Valentine, and if I die, I am very sure Valentine will not marry him. Noirtier watched with indescribable pleasure this noble and sincere countenance on which every sentiment his tongue uttered was depicted, adding by the expression of his fine features all that colouring adds to a sound and faithful drawing. Still, when Morel had finished, he shut his eyes several times, which was his manner of saying, No. No? said Morel. You disapprove of this second project, as you did of the first? I do, signified the old man. But what then must be done? asked Morel. Madame de Saint-Méran's last request was that the marriage might not be delayed. 
"'Must I let things take their course?' Noirtier did not move. "'I understand,' said Morel. "'I am to wait.' "'Yes.' "'But delay may ruin our plan, sir,' replied the young man. "'Alone, Valentine has no power. She will be compelled to submit.' I am here almost miraculously, and can scarcely hope for so good an opportunity to occur again. Believe me, there are only the two plans I have proposed to you. Forgive my vanity, and tell me which you prefer. Do you authorize Mademoiselle Valentine to entrust herself to my honor? No. Do you prefer I seek out Monsieur Depinay? No. Whence, then, will you come the help we need, from chance? resumed morel no from you yes you thoroughly understand me sir pardon my eagerness for my life depends on your answer will our help come from you yes you are sure of it yes there was so much firmness in the look which gave this answer no one could at any rate doubt his will if they did his power oh thank you a thousand times but how unless a miracle should restore your speech your gesture your movement how can you chained to that armchair dumb and motionless oppose this marriage a smile lit up the old man's face a strange smile of the eyes in a paralyzed face then i must wait asked the young man yes but the contract the same smile returned will you assure me it shall not be signed yes said noirtier the contract shall not be signed cried morel oh pardon me sir i can scarcely realize so great a happiness will they not sign it no said the paralytic notwithstanding that assurance morel still hesitated this promise of an impotent old man was so strange that instead of being the result of the power of his will it might emanate from enfeebled organs is it not natural that the madman ignorant of his folly should attempt things beyond his power the weak man talks of burdens he can raise the timid of giants he can confront the poor of treasures he spends the most humble peasant in the height of his pride calls himself jupiter whether noirtier understood the young man's indecision or whether he had not full confidence in his docility he looked uneasily at him what do you wish sir asked morel that i should renew my promise of remaining tranquil noirtier's eyes remained fixed and firm as if to imply that a promise did not suffice then it passed from his face to his hands shall i swear to you sir asked maximilian yes said the paralytic with the same solemnity morel understood that the old man attached great importance to an oath he extended his hand i swear to you on my honor said he to await your decision respecting the course i am to pursue with monsieur d'epinay that is right said the old man now said morel do you wish me to retire yes without seeing mademoiselle valentine yes Morel made a sign that he was ready to obey. But, said he, first allow me to embrace you as your daughter did just now. Noirtier's expression could not be understood. The young man pressed his lips on the same spot, 
on the old man's forehead where Valentine's had been. Then he bowed a second time and retired. He found outside the door the old servant to whom Valentine had given directions. Morel was conducted along a dark passage which led to a little door opening on the garden. Soon found the spot where he had entered with the assistance of the shrubs gained the top of the wall, and by his ladder was in an instant in the clover field where his cabriolet was still waiting for him. He got in it, and thoroughly wearied by so many emotions, arrived about midnight in the Rue Melee, threw himself on his bed, and slept soundly. End of chapter 73「Chapter 74. The Villefort Family Vault. Two days after, a considerable crowd was assembled, towards ten o'clock in the morning, around the door of Monsieur de Villefort's house, and the long file of morning coaches and private carriages extended along the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, and the rue de la papiniere among them was one of a very singular form which appeared to have come from a distance it was a kind of covered wagon painted black and was one of the first to arrive inquiry was made and it was ascertained that by a strange coincidence this carriage contained the corpse of the marquis de saint Maron, and that those who had come thinking to attend one funeral would follow two their number was great the Marquis de saint Meron was one of the most zealous and faithful dignitaries of Louis Eighteenth, and King Charles X, had preserved a great number of friends, and these, added to the personages whom the usages of society gave Villefort a claim on, formed a considerable body. Due information was given to the authorities, and permission obtained that the two funerals should take place at the same time. A second hearse, decked with the same funereal pomp, was brought to Monsieur de Villefort's door, and the coffin removed into it from the post-wagon. The two bodies were to be interred in the cemetery of Père Lachaise, where Monsieur de Villefort had long since had a tomb prepared for the reception of his family. The remains of poor René were already deposited there, and now, after ten years of separation, her father and mother were to be reunited with her the parisians always curious always affected by funereal display looked on with religious silence while the splendid procession accompanied to their last abode two of the number of the old aristocracy the greatest protectors of commerce and sincere devotees to their principles in one of the morning coaches beauchamp de bray and chateau renault were talking of the very sudden death of the marchioness. "'I saw Madame de Saint-Méran only last year at Marseille, when I was coming back from Algiers,' said Chateau Renaud. "'She looked like a woman destined to live to be a hundred years old from her apparent sound health and great activity of mind and body. How old was she?' "'France assured me,' replied Albert, "'that she was sixty-six years old.' but she has not died of old age but of grief it appears that since the death of the marquis 
which affected her very deeply. She has not completely recovered her reason. But of what disease then did she die? asked Debray. It is said to have been a congestion of the brain, or apoplexy, which is the same thing, is it not? Nearly. It is difficult to believe that it was apoplexy, said Beauchamp. Madame de Saint-Méran, whom I once saw, was short, of slender form, and of a much more nervous than sanguine temperament. Grief could hardly produce apoplexy in such a constitution as that of Madame de Saint-Méran. At any rate, said Albert, whatever disease or doctor may have killed her, Monsieur de Villefort, or rather Mademoiselle Valentine, or still rather our friend Franz, inherits a magnificent fortune, amounting, I believe, to eighty thousand livres per annum. And this fortune will be doubled at the death of the old Jacobin Noirtier. This is a tenacious old grandfather, said Beauchamp. Tenacem probositi virum. I think he must have made an agreement with death to outlive all his heirs, and he appears likely to succeed. He resembles the old conventionalist of ninety-three, who said to Napoleon in 1814, You bend because your empire is a young stem, weakened by rapid growth. Take the Republic for a tutor. Let us return with renewed strength to the battlefield, and I promise you five hundred thousand soldiers, another Marengo, and a second Austerlitz. Ideas do not become extinct, sire. They slumber sometimes, but only revive the stronger before they sleep entirely. Ideas and men appeared the same to him. On one thing only puzzles me, namely how France d'Epinay will like a grandfather who cannot be separated from his wife. But where is France? In the first carriage with Monsieur de Villefort, who considered him already as one of the family. Such was the conversation in almost all the carriages. These two sudden deaths, so quickly following each other, astonished everyone. But no one suspected the terrible secret which Monsieur d'Avrigny had communicated in his nocturnal walk to Monsieur de Villefort. They arrived in about an hour at the cemetery. The weather was mild, but dull, and in harmony with the funeral ceremony. Among the groups which flocked towards the family vault, Chateau Renaud recognized Morel, who had come alone in a cabriolet, and walked silently along the path or bordered with yew trees. "'You hear?' said Chateau Renaud, passing his arms through the young captains. "'Are you a friend of Villefort's? How is it that I have never met you at his house?' "'I am no acquaintance of Monsieur de Villefort's,' answered Morel. "'But I was of Madame de Saint-Méran.' Albert came up to them at this moment with France. "'The time and place are but ill-suited for an introduction,' said Albert. "'But we are not superstitious, Monsieur Morel. Allow me to present to you Monsieur Franz d'Epinay, a delightful travelling companion with whom I made the tour of Italy. My dear Franz, Monsieur Maximilian Morel, an excellent friend I have acquired in your absence, and whose name you will hear me mention every time I make an allusion to affection, wit, or amiability. 
Morel hesitated for a moment. He feared it would be hypocritical to accost in a friendly manner the man whom he was tacitly opposing, but his oath and the gravity of the circumstances recurred to his memory. He struggled to conceal his emotion, and bowed to France. "'Mademoiselle de Villefort is in deep sorrow, is she not?' said Debray to France. "'Extremely,' replied he. "'She looks so pale this morning. I scarcely knew her.' These apparently simple words pierced Morel to the heart. This man had seen Valentine, and spoken to her. The young and high-spirited officer required all his strength of mind to resist breaking his oath. He took the arm of Chateau Renaud, and turned towards the vault, where the attendants had already placed the two coffins. "'This is a magnificent habitation,' said Beauchamp, looking towards the mausoleum. "'A summer and winter palace. You will in turn enter it, my dear Epinay, for you will soon be numbered as one of the family.' I, as a philosopher, should like a little country house, a cottage down there under the trees, without so many free stones over my poor body. In dying, I will say to those around me what Voltaire wrote to Piron, Eorus, and all will be over. But come, France, take courage. Your wife is an heiress. Indeed, Beauchamp, you are unbearable. Politics has made you laugh at everything, and political men have made you disbelieve everything. But when you have the honour of associating with ordinary men, and the pleasure of leaving politics for a moment, try to find your affectionate heart, which you leave with your stick when you go to the chamber. But tell me, said Beauchamp, what is life? Is it not a hall in death's anteroom? "'I am prejudiced against Beauchamp,' said Albert, drawing France away, and leaving the former to finish his philosophical dissertation with Debray. The Villefort vault formed a square of white stones about twenty feet high. An interior partition separated the two families, and each apartment had its entrance door. Here were not, as in other tombs, ignoble drawers, one above another, where thrift bestows its dead and labels them like specimens in a museum. All that was visible within the bronze gates was a gloomy-looking room, separated by a wall from the vault itself. The two doors before mentioned were in the middle of this wall, and enclosed the Villefort and Saint-Méran coffins. Their grief might freely expend itself, without being disturbed, by the trifling loungers who came from a picnic party to visit Père Lachaise, or by lovers who made it their rendezvous. The two coffins were placed on trestles previously prepared to their reception in the right-hand crypt belonging to the Saint-Méran family. Villefort, France, and a few near relatives alone entered the sanctuary. As the religious ceremonies had all been performed at the door, and there was no address given, the party all separated. Chateau Renaud, Albert and Morel went one way, and Debray and Beauchamp the other. France remained with Monsieur de Villefort at the gate of the cemetery. Morel made an excuse to wait. He saw France and Monsieur de Villefort get into the same mourning coach, and thought this meeting foreboded evil. He then returned to Paris, and although in the same carriage with Chateau Renaud and Albert, he did not hear one word of their conversation. 
as france was about to take leave of monsieur de villefort when shall i see you again said the latter at what time you please sir replied france as soon as possible i am at your command sir shall we return together if not unpleasant to you on the contrary i shall feel much pleasure thus the future father and son-in-law stepped into the same carriage and morel seeing them pass became uneasy villefort and france returned to the faubourg saint honore the procureur without going to see either his wife or his daughter went at once to his study and offering the young man a chair monsieur d'epinay said he allow me to remind you at this moment which is perhaps not so ill-chosen as at first sight may appear for obedience to the wishes of the departed is the first offering which should be made at their tomb allow me then to remind you of the wish expressed by madame de saint meran on her deathbed that valentine's wedding might not be deferred you know the affairs of the deceased are in perfect order and her will bequeaths to valentine the entire property of the saint meran family the notary showed me the documents yesterday which will enable us to draw up the contract immediately you may call on the notary monsieur deschamps place beauvau faubourg saint honore and you have my authority to inspect those deeds sir replied monsieur d'epinay it is not perhaps the moment for mademoiselle valentine who is in deep distress to think of a husband indeed i fear valentine will have no greater pleasure than that of fulfilling her grandmother's last injunctions there will be no obstacle from that quarter i assure you in that case replied france as i shall raise none you may make arrangements when you please i have pledged my word and shall feel pleasure and happiness in adhering to it then said villefort nothing further is required the contract was to have been signed three days since we shall find it all ready and can sign it to-day but the morning said france hesitating don't be uneasy on that score replied villefort no ceremony will be neglected in my house mademoiselle de villefort may retire during the prescribed three months to her estate of saint meran i say hers for she inherits it to-day there after a few days if you like the civil marriage shall be celebrated without pomp or ceremony madame de saint meran wished her daughter should be married there when that is over you sir can return to paris while your wife passes the time of her mourning with her mother-in-law as you please sir said france then replied monsieur de villefort have the kindness to wait half an hour valentine shall come down into the drawing-room i will send monsieur deschamps we will read and sign the contract before we separate and this evening madame de villefort shall accompany valentine to her estate where we will rejoin them in a week sir said france i have one request to make what is it i wish albert de morcerf and raoul de chateauneau to be present at this signature you know they are my witnesses half an hour will suffice to apprise them will you go for them yourself 
or shall you send i prefer going sir i shall expect you then in half an hour baron and valentine will be ready france bowed and left the room scarcely had the door closed when monsieur de villefort sent to tell valentine to be ready in the drawing-room in half an hour as he expected the notary and monsieur d'epinay and his witnesses the news caused a great sensation throughout the house madame de villefort would not believe it and valentine was thunderstruck she looked around for help and would have gone down to her grandfather's room but on the stairs she met monsieur de villefort who took her arm and led her into the drawing-room in the ante-room valentine met barois and looked despairingly at the old servant a moment later madame de villefort entered the drawing-room with her little edward it was evident that she had shared the grief of the family for she was pale and looked fatigued she sat down took edward on her knees and from time to time pressed this child on whom her affections appeared centred almost convulsively to her bosom two carriages were soon heard to enter the courtyard one was the notary's the other that of france and his friends in a moment the whole party was assembled valentine was so pale one might trace the blue veins from her temples round her eyes and down her cheeks france was deeply affected chateau renaud and albert looked at each other with amazement the ceremony which was just concluded had not appeared more sorrowful than did that which was about to begin madame de villefort had placed herself in the shadow behind a velvet curtain and as she constantly bent over her child it was difficult to read the expression of her face monsieur de villefort was as usual unmoved the notary after having according to the customary method arranged the papers on the table taken his place in an armchair and raised his spectacles turned towards france are you monsieur france de quinel baron d'epinay asked he although he knew it perfectly yes sir replied france the notary bowed i have then to inform you sir at the request of monsieur de villefort that your projected marriage with mademoiselle de villefort has changed the feeling of monsieur noirtier towards his grandchild and that he disinherits her entirely of the fortune he would have left her let me hasten to add continued he that the testator having only the right to alienate a part of his fortune and having alienated it all the will will not bear scrutiny and is declared null and void yes said villefort but i warn monsieur d'epinay that during my lifetime my father's will shall never be questioned my position forbidding any doubt to be entertained sir said france i regret much that such a question has been raised in the presence of mademoiselle valentine i have never inquired the amount of her fortune which however limited it may be exceeds mine my family has sought consideration in this alliance with monsieur de villefort all i seek is happiness valentine imperceptibly thanked him while two 
silent tears rolled down her cheeks besides sir said villefort addressing himself to his future son-in-law excepting the loss of a portion of your hopes this unexpected will not need to personally wound you monsieur noirtier's weakness of mind sufficiently explains it it is not because mademoiselle valentine is going to marry you that he is angry but because she will marry a union with any other would have caused him the same sorrow old age is selfish sir and mademoiselle de villefort has been a faithful companion to monsieur Roitier, which she cannot be when she becomes the baroness d'epinay my father's melancholy state prevents our speaking to him on any subjects which the weakness of his mind would incapacitate him from understanding and i am perfectly convinced that at the present time although he knows that his granddaughter is going to be married monsieur noirtier has ever forgotten the name of his intended grandson monsieur de villefort had scarcely said this when the door opened and barrois appeared gentlemen said he in a tone strangely firm for a servant speaking to his masters under such solemn circumstances gentlemen monsieur noirtier de villefort wishes to speak immediately to monsieur france de quenel baron d'epinay he as well as the notary that there might be no mistake in the person gave all his titles to the bridegroom-elect villefort started madame de villefort let her son slip from her knees valentine rose pale and dumb as a statue albert and chateau renaud exchanged a second look more full of amazement than the first the notary looked at villefort it is impossible said the procureur monsieur d'epinay cannot leave the drawing-room at present it is at this moment replied barrois with the same firmness that monsieur noirtier my master wishes to speak on important subjects to monsieur france d'epinay grandpapa noirtier can speak now then said edward with his habitual quickness however his remark did not make madame de villefort even smile so much was every mind engaged and so solemn was the situation astonishment was at its height something like a smile was perceptible on madame de villefort's countenance valentine instinctively raised her eyes as if to thank heaven pray go valentine said monsieur de villefort and see what this new fancy of your grandfather's is valentine rose quickly and was hastening joyfully towards the door when monsieur de villefort altered his intention stop said he i will go with you excuse me sir said france since monsieur noirtier sent for me i am ready to attend to his wish besides i shall be happy to pay my respects to him not having yet had the honour of doing so pray sir said villefort with marked uneasiness do not disturb yourself forgive me sir said france in a resolute tone i would not lose this opportunity of proving to monsieur noirtier how wrong it would be of him to encourage feelings of dislike to me which i am determined to conquer whatever they may be by my devotion and without listening to villefort he arose and followed valentine 
who was running downstairs with the joy of a shipwrecked mariner who finds a rock to cling to. Monsieur de Villefort followed them. Chateau Renault and Morcerf exchanged a third look of still increasing wonder. End of chapter 74「Chapter 75 Noirtier was prepared to receive them, dressed in black and installed in his armchair. When the three persons he expected had entered, he looked at the door, which his valet immediately closed. "'Listen,' whispered Villefort to Valentine, who could not conceal her joy. "'If Monsieur Noirtier wishes to communicate anything which would delay your marriage, I forbid you to understand him.' Valentine blushed, but did not answer. Villefort, approaching Noirtier, "'Here is Monsieur Franz Depinay,' said he. "'You requested to see him. We have all wished for this interview, and I trust it will convince you how ill-informed are your objections to Valentine's marriage.' Noirtier answered only by a look which made Villefort's blood run cold. He motioned to Valentine to approach. In a moment, thanks to her habit of conversing with her grandfather, she understood that he asked for a key. Then his eye was fixed on the drawer of a small chest between the windows. She opened the drawer and found a key, and understanding that was what he wanted, again watched his eyes, which turned towards an old secretary which had been neglected for many years, and was supposed to contain nothing but useless documents. "'Shall I open the secretary?' asked Valentine. "'Yes,' said the old man. "'And the drawers?' "'Yes.' "'Those at the side?' "'No.' "'The middle one?' "'Yes.' Valentine opened it, and drew out a bundle of papers. "'Is that what you wish for?' asked she. "'No.' She took successively all the other papers out till the drawer was empty. "'But there are no more,' said she. Noirtier's eye was fixed on the dictionary. "'Yes, I understand, grandfather,' said the young girl. He pointed to each letter of the alphabet. At the letter S, the old man stopped her. She opened and found the word, "'Secret.' "'Ah, is there a secret spring?' said Valentine. "'Yes,' said Noirtier. "'And who knows it?' Noirtier looked at the door where the servant had gone out. "'Barois?' said she. "'Yes.' "'Shall I call him?' "'Yes.' Valentine went to the door and called Barois. Villefort's impatience during this scene made the perspiration roll from his forehead, and France was stupefied. The old servant came. "'Barois?' said Valentine. My grandfather has told me to open that drawer in the secretary, but there is a secret spring in it, which you know. Will you open it? Barois looked at the old man. Obey, said Noirtier's intelligent eye. Barois touched a spring, the false bottom came out, and they saw a bundle of papers tied with a black string. Is that what you wish for? said Barois. Yes. 
Shall I give these papers to Monsieur de Villefort? No. To Mademoiselle Valentine? No. To Monsieur Franz d'Epinay? Yes. Franz, astonished, advanced a step. To me, sir? said he. Yes. Franz took them from Barrois, and casting a glance at the cover, read, To be given after my death to General Durand, who shall bequeath the packet to his son, with an injunction to preserve it as containing an important document. Well, sir, asked Franz, what do you wish me to do with this paper? To preserve it, sealed up as it is, doubtless, said the procureur. No, replied Noirtier eagerly. Do you wish him to read it? said Valentine. Yes, replied the old man. You understand, Baron, my grandfather wishes you to read this paper, said Valentine. Then let us sit down, said Villefort impatiently, for it would take some time. Sit down, said the old man. Villefort took a chair, but Valentine remained standing by her father's side, and France before him, holding the mysterious paper in his hand. Read, said the old man. France untied it, and in the midst of the most profound silence read, Extract from the report of a meeting of the Bonapartist Club in the Rue Saint-Jacques, held February 5th, 1815. France stopped. February 5th? 1815? said he. It is the day my father was murdered. Valentine and Villefort were dumb. The eye of the old man alone seemed to say clearly, Go on. But it was on leaving this club, said he, my father disappeared. Noirtier's eyes continued to say, Read. He resumed. The undersigned Louis Jacques Beaupère, lieutenant colonel of artillery, Etienne Dauchampy, general of the brigade, and Claude Lecharpal, keeper of the woods and forests, declare that on the 4th of February a letter arrived from the island of Elba, recommending to the kindness and the confidence of the Bonapartist club General Flavien de Quenel, who, having served the emperor from 1804 to 1814, was supposed to be devoted to the interests of the Napoleon dynasty, notwithstanding the title of baron, which Louis XVIII had just granted to him with his estate of Epinay. A note was in consequence addressed to General de Quesnel, begging him to be present at the meeting next day, the 5th. The note indicated neither the street nor the number of the house where the meeting was to be held. It bore no signature, but it announced to the general that someone would call for him if he would be ready at nine o'clock. The meetings were always held from that time till midnight. At nine o'clock, the president of the club presented himself. The general was ready. The president informed him that one of the conditions of his introduction was that he should be eternally ignorant of the place of the meeting, and that he would allow his eyes to be bandaged, swearing that he would not endeavor to take off the bandage. General de Quesnel accepted the condition, and promised on his honor not to seek to discover the road they took. The general's carriage was ready, but the president tell him it was impossible for him to use it, since it was useless to blindfold the master if the coachman knew through what streets he went. "'What must be done, then?' asked the general. "'I have my carriage here,' 
said the president. Have you then so much confidence in your servant that you can entrust him with a secret you will not allow me to know? Our coachman is a member of the club, said the president. We shall be driven by a state councillor. Then we run another risk, said the general, laughing, that of being upset. We insert this joke to prove that the general was not in the least compelled to attend the meeting, but that he came willingly. When they were seated in the carriage, the president reminded the general of his promise to allow his eyes to be bandaged, to which he made no opposition. On the road, the president thought he saw the general make an attempt to remove the handkerchief, and reminded him of his oath. "'Sure enough,' said the general. The carriage stopped at an alley leading out of the Rue Saint-Jacques. The general alighted, leaning on the arm of the president, of whose dignity he was not aware, considering him simply as a member of the club. They went through the alley, mounted a flight of stairs, and entered the assembly room. The deliberations had already begun. The members, apprised of the sort of presentation which was to be made that evening, were all in attendance. When, in the middle of the room, the general was invited to remove his bandage, he did so immediately, and was surprised to see so many well-known faces in a society of whose existence he had till then been ignorant. They questioned him as to his sentiments, but he contented himself with answering that the letters from the island of Elba ought to have informed them. Franz interrupted himself by saying, My father was a royalist. They need not have asked his sentiments, which were well known. And hence, said Villefort, arose my affection for your father, my dear Monsieur Franz. Opinions held in common are a ready bond of union. Read again, said the old man. Franz continued. The president then sought to make him speak more explicitly, but Monsieur de Quesnel replied that he wished to first to know what they wanted with him. He was then informed of the contents of the letter from the island of Elba, in which he was recommended to the club as a man who would be likely to advance the interests of their party. One paragraph spoke of the return of Bonaparte, and promised another letter and further details on the arrival of the pharaoh belonging to the shipbuilder Morel of Marseille, whose captain was entirely devoted to the emperor. During all this time, the general on whom they thought to have relied as on a brother manifested evidently signs of discontent and repugnance. When the reading was finished, he remained silent with knitted brows. "'Well?' asked the president. "'What do you say to this letter, General?' "'I say that it is too soon after declaring myself for Louis Eighteenth "'to break my vow in behalf of the ex-emperor.' This answer was too clear to permit of any mistake as to his sentiments. "'General,' said the President, "'we acknowledge no king Louis Eighteenth, or an ex-emperor, "'but His Majesty the Emperor and King, "'driven from France, which is his kingdom, by violence and treason.' "'Excuse me, gentlemen,' said the General. "'You may not acknowledge Louis Eighteenth, but I do.' as he has made me a baron and a field-marshal, and I shall never forget that for these two titles I am indebted to his happy return to France. Sir, 
said the President, rising with gravity. Be careful what you say. Your words clearly show us that they are deceived concerning you in the island of Elba, and have deceived us. The communication has been made to you in consequence of the confidence placed in you, and which does your honour. Now we discover our error. A title and promotion attach you to the government which we wish to overturn. We will not constrain you to help us. We enroll no one against his conscience. But we will compel you to act generously, even if you are not disposed to do so. You could call acting generously, knowing your conspiracy, and not informing against you. That is what I should call becoming your accomplice. You see, I am more candid than you. Ah, oh, my father, said Franz, interrupting himself. I understand now why they murdered him. Valentine could not help casting one glance toward the young man, whose filial enthusiasm it was delightful to behold. Villefort walked to and fro behind them. Noirtier watched the expression of each one, and preserved his dignified and commanding attitude. France returned to the manuscript, and continued. "'Sir,' said the President, "'you have been invited to join this assembly. You were not forced here. It was proposed to you to become blindfolded. You accepted. When you complied with this twofold request, you well knew we did not wish to secure the throne of Louis Eighteenth. Oh, we should not take so much care to avoid the vigilance of the police. It would be conceding too much to allow you to put on a mask to aid you in the discovery of our secret, and then to remove it that you may ruin those who have confided in you. No, no, you must first say if you declare yourself for the king of a day who now reigns, or for his majesty the emperor. I am a royalist, replied the general. I have taken the oath of allegiance to Louis Eighteenth, and I will adhere to it. These words were followed by a general murmur, and it was evident that several of the members were discussing the propriety of making the general repent of his rashness. The president again arose, and having imposed silence, said, Sir, you are too serious and too sensible a man not to understand the consequences of our present situation, and your candor has already dictated to us the conditions which remain for us to offer you. The general, putting his hand on his sword, exclaimed, If you talk of honor, do not begin by disavowing its laws and impose nothing by violence. And you, sir, continued the president, with a calmness still more terrible than the general's anger, I advise you not to touch your sword. The general looked around with slight uneasiness. However, he did not yield, but calling up all his fortitude, said, I will not swear. Then you must die, replied the president calmly. Monsieur Depinay became very pale. He looked round him for a second time. Several members of the club were whispering and getting their arms from under their cloaks. General, said the president, do not alarm yourself. You are among men of honor, who will use every means to convince you before resorting to the last extremity. But as you have said, you are among conspirators. You are in possession of our secret, and you must restore it to us. 
A significant silence followed these words, and as the general did not reply, "'Close the doors,' said the president to the doorkeeper. The same deadly silence succeeded these words. Then the general advanced, and making a violent effort to control his feelings, "'I have a son,' said he, "'and I ought to think of him, finding myself among assassins.' "'General,' said the chief of the assembly, "'one man may insult fifty. "'It is the privilege of weakness, "'but he does wrong to use his privilege. "'Follow my advice. "'Swear, and do not insult.' "'The general, again daunted by the superiority of the chief, "'hesitated a moment, "'then advancing to the president's desk. "'What is the form?' said he. "'It is this.' I swear by my honour not to reveal to anyone what I have seen and heard on the 5th of February, 1815, between nine and ten o'clock in the evening, and I plead guilty of death should I ever violate this oath. The general appeared to be affected by a nervous tremor, which prevented his answering for some moments. Then, overcoming his manifest repugnance, he pronounced the required oath, but in so low a tone as to be scarcely audible to the majority of the members, who insisted on his repeating it clearly and distinctly, which he did. "'Now, am I at liberty to retire?' said the general. The president arose, appointed three members to accompany him, and got into the carriage with the general after bandaging his eyes. One of those three members was the coachman who had driven them there. The other members silently dispersed. "'Where do you wish to be taken?' asked the President. "'Anywhere out of your presence,' replied Monsieur Depinay. "'Beware, sir,' replied the President. "'You are no longer in the Assembly, and have only to do with individuals. Do not insult them unless you wish to be held responsible.' But instead of listening, Monsieur Depinay went on. "'You are still as brave in your carriage as in your assembly, because you are still four against one.' The président stopped the coach. They were at the part of the Quai des Ormes, where the steps lead down to the river. "'Why do you stop here?' asked Depinay. "'Because, sir,' said the président, "'you have insulted a man, and that man will not go one step farther.' without demanding honourable reparation. "'Another method of assassination,' said the general, shrugging his shoulders. "'Make no noise, sir, unless you wish me to consider you as one of the men of whom you spoke just now as cowards, who take their weakness for a shield. You are alone. One alone shall answer you. You have a sword by your side. I have one in my cane.' You have no witness. One of these gentlemen will serve you. Now, if you please, remove your bandage. The general tore the handkerchief from his eyes. At last, said he, I shall know with whom I have to do. They opened the door, and the four men alighted. Franz again interrupted himself and wiped the cold drops from his brow. There was something awful in hearing the son read aloud, in trembling pallor, these details of his father's death, which had hitherto been a mystery. 
Valentine clasped her hands as if in prayer. Noirtier looked at Villefort with an almost sublime expression of contempt and pride. France continued. It was, as we said, the 5th of February. For three days the mercury had been five or six degrees below freezing, and the steps were covered with ice. The general was stout and tall. The president offered him the side of the railing to assist him in getting down. The two witnesses followed. It was a dark night. The ground from the steps to the river was covered with snow and hoar-frost. The water of the river looked black and deep. One of the seconds went for a lantern in a coal-barge near, and by its light they examined the weapons. The president's sword, which was simply, as he had said, one he carried in his cane, was five inches shorter than the general's and had no guard. The general proposed to cast lots for the swords, but the president said it was he who had given the provocation, and when he had given it, he had supposed each would use his own arms. The witnesses endeavoured to insist, but the president bade them be silent. The lantern was placed on the ground, the two adversaries took their stations, and the duel began. The light made the two swords appear like flashes of lightning. As for the men, they were scarcely perceptible. The darkness was so great. General Depinay passed for one of the best swordsmen in the army, but he was pressed so closely in the onset that he missed his aim and fell. The witnesses thought he was dead, but his adversary, who knew he had not struck him, offered him the assistance of his hand to rise. The circumstance irritated instead of calming the general, and he rushed on his adversary. But his opponent did not allow his guard to be broken. He received him on his sword, and three times the general drew back on finding himself too closely engaged, and then returned to the charge. At the third he fell again. They thought he slipped, as at first, and the witnesses, seeing he did not move, approached and endeavoured to raise him. But the one who passed his arm around the body found it was moistened with blood. The general, who had almost fainted, revived. Ah, said he, they have sent some fencing master to fight with me. The president, without answering, approached the witness who held the lantern, and raising his sleeve, showed him two wounds he had received in his arm. Then, opening his coat and unbuttoning his waistcoat, displayed his side, pierced with a third wound. Still, he had not even uttered a sigh. General Depinay died five minutes after. France read these last words in a voice so choked that they were hardly audible, and then stopped passing his hand over his eyes as if to dispel a cloud. But after a moment's silence, he continued. The président went up the steps after pushing his sword into his cane. A track of blood on the snow marked his course. He had scarcely arrived at the top when he heard a heavy splash in the water. It was the general's body, which the witnesses had just thrown into the river, after ascertaining that he was dead. The general fell, then, in a loyal duel, and not in ambush, as it might have been reported. In proof of this, we have signed this paper to establish the truth of the facts.
lest the moment should arrive when either of the actors in this terrible scene should be accused of premeditated murder or of infringement of the laws of honour. Signed, Beaurepaire, Deschamps, and Le Charpal. When France had finished reading this account, so dreadful for a son, when Valentine, pale with emotion, had wiped away a tear, when Villefort, trembling and crouched in a corner, had endeavoured to lessen the storm by supplicating glances at the implacable old man. "'Sir,' said Depinay to Noirtier, "'since you are well acquainted with all these details which are attested by honourable signatures, since you appear to take some interest in me, although you have only manifested it hitherto by causing me sorrow, refuse me not one final satisfaction. Tell me the name of the president of the club, that I may at least know who killed my father. Villefort mechanically felt for the handle of the door. Valentine, who understood sooner than anyone her grandfather's answer, and who had often seen two scars upon his right arm, drew back a few steps. "'Mademoiselle,' said France, returning towards Valentine, "'unite your efforts with mine to find out the name of the man who had made me an orphan at two years of age.' Valentine remained dumb and motionless. "'Hold, sir,' said Villefort. "'Do not prolong this dreadful scene.' The names have been purposely concealed. My father himself does not know who his president was, and if he knows he cannot tell you. Proper names are not in the dictionary. Oh, misery! cried Franz. The only hope which sustained me and enabled me to read to the end was that of knowing at least the name of him who killed my father. Sir, sir! cried he, turning to Noirtier. Do what you can. Make me understand in some way. Yes, replied Noirtier. Oh, mademoiselle, mademoiselle, cried Franz. Your grandfather says he can indicate the person. Help me, lend me your assistance. Noirtier looked at the dictionary. Franz took it with a nervous trembling and repeated the letters of the alphabet successfully until he came to M. At that letter the old man signified yes. M, repeated Franz. The young man's finger glided over the words, but at each one Noirtier answered by a negative sign. Valentine hid her head between her hands. At length France arrived at the word. Myself. Yes. You, cried France, whose hair stood on end. You, Monsieur Noirtier, you killed my father? Yes, replied Noirtier, fixing a majestic look on the young man. France fell powerless on a chair. Villefort opened the door and escaped, for the idea had entered his mind to stifle the little remaining life in the heart of this terrible old man. End of chapter 75「Chapter 76 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 
Chapter seventy six Progress of Cavalcanti the Younger. Meanwhile, Monsieur Cavalcanti the Elder had returned to his service, not in the army of His Majesty the Emperor of Austria, but at the gaming table of the Baths of Lucca, of which he was one of the most assiduous courtiers. He had spent every farthing that had been allowed for his journey as a reward for the majestic and solemn manner in which he had maintained his assumed character of father. Monsieur Andrea, at his departure, inherited all the papers which proved that he had indeed the honour of being the son of the Marquis Bartolomeo and the Marchioness Oliva Corsinari. He was now fairly launched in that Parisian society which gives such ready access to foreigners, and treats them not as they really are, but as they wish to be considered. Besides, what is required of a young man in Paris? To speak its language tolerably, to make a good appearance, to be a good gamester, and to pay in cash. They are certainly less particular with a foreigner than with a Frenchman. Andrea had then, in a fortnight, attained a very fair position. He was called Count. He was said to possess fifty thousand livres per annum, and his father's immense riches buried in the quarries of Saravezza, were a constant theme. A learned man, before whom the last circumstance was mentioned as a fact, declared he had seen the quarries in question, which gave great weight to assertions hitherto somewhat doubtful, but which now assumed the garb of reality. Such was the state of society in Paris at the period we bring before our readers, when Monte Cristo went one evening to pay Monsieur Donglars a visit. Monsieur Danglars was out, but the Count was asked to go and see the Baroness, and he accepted the invitation. It was never without a nervous shudder since the dinner at Auteuil, and the events which followed it, that Madame Danglars heard Monte Cristo's name announced. If he did not come, the painful sensation became most intense. If, on the contrary, he appeared, his noble countenance, his brilliant eyes, his amiability, his polite attention even towards Madame Danglars soon dispelled every impression of fear. It appeared impossible to the Baroness that a man of such delightfully pleasing manners should entertain evil designs against her. Besides, the most corrupt minds only suspect evil when it would answer some interested end. Useless injury is repugnant to every mind. When Monte Cristo entered the boudoir, to which we have already once introduced our readers, and where the Baroness was examining some drawings which her daughter passed to her after having looked at them with Monsieur Cavalcanti. His presence soon produced its usual effect, and it was with smiles that the Baroness received the Count. Although she had been a little disconcerted at the announcement of his name, the latter took in the whole scene at a glance. The Baroness was partially reclining on a sofa. Eugenie sat near her, and Cavalcanti was standing. Cavalcanti, dressed in black like one of Goethe's heroes, with varnished shoes and white silk open-worked stockings, passed a white and tolerably nice-looking hand through his light hair, and so displayed a sparkling diamond, that in spite of Monte Cristo's advice, the vain young man had been unable to resist putting on his little finger. This movement was accompanied by killing glances at Mademoiselle Danglars, and by sighs launched in the same direction. Mademoiselle Danglars was still the same, cold, beautiful, and satirical. Not one of these glances, nor one sigh, was lost on her, 
they might have been said to fall on the shield of minerva which some philosophers assert protected sometimes the breast of sappho eugenie bowed coldly to the count and availed herself of the first moment when the conversation became earnest to escape to her study whence very soon two cheerful and noisy voices being heard in connection with occasional notes of the piano assured monte cristo that mademoiselle d'anglars preferred to his society and to that of monsieur cavalcanti the company of mademoiselle louise d'armilly her singing teacher it was then especially while conversing with madame d'anglars and apparently absorbed by the charm of the conversation that the count noticed monsieur andrea cavalcanti's solicitude his manner of listening to the music at the door he dared not pass and of manifesting his admiration the banker soon returned his first look was certainly directed towards monte cristo but the second was for andrea as for his wife he bowed to her as some husbands do to their wives but in a way that bachelors will never comprehend until a very extensive code is published on conjugal life have not the ladies invited you to join them at the piano said danglars to andrea alas no sir replied andrea with a sigh still more remarkable than the former ones danglars immediately advanced towards the door and opened it the two young ladies were seen seated on the same chair at the piano accompanying themselves each with one hand a fancy to which they had accustomed themselves and performed admirably mademoiselle d'armilly whom they then perceived through the open doorway formed with eugenie one of the tableaux vivants of which the germans are so fond she was somewhat beautiful and exquisitely formed a little fairy-like figure with large curls falling on her neck which was rather too long as perugino sometimes makes his virgins and her eyes dull from fatigue she was said to have a weak chest and like antonia in the cremona violin she would die one day while singing monte cristo cast one rapid and curious glance round this sanctum it was the first time he had ever seen mademoiselle d'armilly of whom he had heard much well said the banker to his daughter are we then all to be excluded he then led the young man into the study and either by chance or manoeuvre the door was partially closed after andrea so that from the place where they sat neither the count nor the baroness could see anything but as the banker had accompanied andrea madame d'anglars appeared to take no notice of it the count soon heard andrea's voice singing a corsican song accompanied by the piano while the count smiled at hearing this song which made him lose sight of andrea in the recollection of benedetto madame d'anglars was boasting to monte cristo of her husband's strength of mind who that very morning had lost three or four hundred thousand francs by a failure at milan the praise was well deserved for had not the count heard it from the baroness or by one of these means by which he knew everything the baron's countenance would not have led him to suspect it hem thought monte cristo he begins to conceal his losses a month since he boasted of them and then aloud oh madame monsieur danglars is so skilful he will soon regain at the bourse what he loses elsewhere i see that you participate in a prevalent error said madame danglars what is it said monte cristo that monsieur danglars speculates whereas he never does truly madame 
"'I recollect Monsieur de Bray told me, a propos, what is become of him. "'I have seen nothing of him the last three or four days.' "'Nor I,' said Madame Danglars. "'But you began a sentence, sir, and did not finish.' "'Which?' "'Monsieur de Bray had told you.' "'Ah, yes, he told me it was you who sacrificed to the demon of speculation.' "'I was once very fond of it.' but i do not indulge now then you are wrong madame fortune is precarious and if i were a woman and fate had made me a banker's wife whatever might be my confidence in my husband's good fortune still in speculation you know there is great risk well i would secure for myself a fortune independent of him even if i acquired it by placing my interests in hands unknown to him Madame Danglars blushed, in spite of all her efforts. "'Stay,' said Monte Cristo, as though he had not observed her confusion. "'I have heard of a lucky hit that was made yesterday on the Neapolitan bonds.' "'I have none, nor have I ever possessed any. But really, we have talked long enough of money, Count. We are like two stockbrokers. Have you heard how fate is persecuting the poor Villefort's? "'What has happened?' said the Count, simulating total ignorance. "'You know the Marquis of saint Méran died a few days after he had set out on his journey to Paris, and the Marchioness a few days after her arrival.' "'Yes,' said Monte Cristo. "'I have heard that. But as Claudius said to Hamlet, "'It is a law of nature their fathers died before them, "'and they mourned their loss. "'They will die before their children,' who will in their turn grieve for them. But that is not all. Not all? No, they were going to marry their daughter to Monsieur Franz d'Epinay. Is it broken off? Yesterday morning, it appears. Franz declined the honour. Indeed. And is the reason known? No. How extraordinary! And how does Monsieur de Villefort bear it? "'As usual, like a philosopher,' Danglars returned at this moment alone. "'Well,' said the baroness, "'do you leave Monsieur Calvaganti with your daughter?' "'And Mademoiselle d'Armilly,' said the banker. "'Do you consider her no one?' Then, turning to Monte Cristo, he said, "'Prince Cavalcanti is a charming young man, is he not? "'But is he really a prince?' "'I will not answer for it.' said Monte Cristo. His father was introduced to me as a marquis, so he ought to be a count, but I do not think he has much claim to that title. Why, said the banker, if he is a prince, he is wrong not to maintain his rank. I do not like anyone to deny his origin. Oh, you are a thorough democrat, said Monte Cristo, smiling. But do you see to what you are exposing yourself, said the baroness. If, perchance, Monsieur de Morcerf came, he would find Monsieur Cavalcanti in that room where he, the betrothed of Eugénie, has never been admitted. "'You may well say, perchance,' replied the banker, "'for he comes so seldom. It would seem only chance that brings him.' "'But should he come and find that young man with your daughter, he might be displeased.' "'He? You are mistaken.' Monsieur Albert would not do us the honour to be jealous. 
He does not like Eugenie sufficiently. Besides, I care not for his displeasure. Still, situated as we are. Yes, do you know how we are situated? At his mother's ball he danced one with Eugenie, and Monsieur Cavalcanti three times, and he took no notice of it. The valet announced the Vicomte Albert de Morcerf. The baroness rose hastily, and was going to the study when Danglars stopped her. "'Let her alone,' said he. She looked at him in amazement. Monte Cristo appeared to be unconscious of what passed. Albert entered, looking very handsome and in high spirits. He bowed politely to the baroness, familiarly to Danglars, and affectionately to Monte Cristo. Then turning to the baroness, "'May I ask how Mademoiselle Danglars is?' said he. "'She is quite well,' replied Danglars quickly. "'She is at the piano with Monsieur Cavalcanti.' Albert retained his calm and indifferent manner. He might feel perhaps annoyed, but he knew Monte Cristo's eye was on him. "'Monsieur Cavalcanti has a fine tenor voice,' said he. "'And Mademoiselle Eugenie a splendid soprano, and then she plays the piano like a Tolberg. The concert must be a delightful one.' "'They suit each other remarkably well,' said Danglars. Albert appeared not to notice this remark, which was, however, so rude that Madame Danglars blushed. "'I, too,' said the young man, "'am a musician. At least, my masters used to tell me so. But it is strange that my voice never would suit any other, and the soprano less than any.' Danglars smiled, and seemed to say, "'It is of no consequence.' Then, hoping doubtless to effect his purpose, he said, the prince and my daughter were universally admired yesterday. You were not of the party, Monsieur de Morcerf. What prince? asked Albert. Prince Cavalcanti, said Danglars, who persisted in giving the young man that title. Pardon me, said Albert. I was not aware that he was a prince. And Prince Cavalcanti sang with Mademoiselle Eugenie yesterday? It must have been charming, indeed. I regret not having heard them, but I was unable to accept your invitation, having promised to accompany my mother to a German concert given by the Baroness of Chateau Renaud. This was followed by rather an awkward silence. May I also be allowed, said Morcerf, to pay my respects to Mademoiselle Danglars? Wait a moment, said the banker, stopping the young man. Do you hear that delightful cavatina? Ta 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 ti ta 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 ta. It is charming. Let them finish. One moment. Bravi, bravi, brava. The banker was enthusiastic in his applause. Indeed, said Albert. It is exquisite. It is impossible to understand the music of his country better than Prince Cavalcanti does. You said prince, did you not? but he can easily become one, if he is not already. It is no uncommon thing in Italy. But to return to the charming musicians, you should give us a treat, Danglars, without telling them there is a stranger. Ask them to sing one more song. It is so delightful to hear music in the distance, when the musicians are unrestrained by observation. Danglars was quite annoyed by the young man's indifference. 
he took Monte Cristo aside. "'What do you think of our lover?' said he. "'He appears cool. But then your word is given.' "'Yes, doubtless. I have promised to give my daughter to a man who loves her, but not to one who does not. See him there, cold as marble and proud like his father. If he were rich, if he had Cavalcanti's fortune, that might be pardoned. Ma foi! I haven't consulted my daughter, but if she has good taste—' "'Oh!' said Monte Cristo. "'My fondness may blind me, but I assure you I consider Morcerf a charming young man, who will render your daughter happy, and will sooner or later attain a certain amount of distinction. And his father's position is good.' "'Hm,' said Danglars. "'Why do you doubt?' "'The past.' that obscurity of the past. But that does not affect the sun. Very true. Now I beg of you, don't go off your head. It's a month now that you have been thinking of this marriage, and you must see that it throws some responsibility on me, for it was at my house you met this young Cavalcanti, whom I do not really know at all. But I do. Have you made inquiry? "'Is there any need of that? Does not his appearance speak for him? And he is very rich.' "'I am not so sure of that.' "'And yet you said he had money. Fifty thousand livres. A mere trifle.' "'He is well educated.' "'Hm,' said Monte Cristo in his turn. "'He is a musician.' "'So are all the Italians.' "'Come, Count.' You do not do that young man justice. Well, I acknowledge it annoys me, knowing your connection with the Morcerf family, to see him throw himself in the way. Danglars burst out laughing. <laughs> what a Puritan you are, said he. That happens every day. But you cannot break it off in this way. The Morcerfs are depending on this union. Indeed. Positively. "'Then let them explain themselves. "'You should give the father a hint. "'You are so intimate with the family.' "'I? "'Where the devil did you find out that?' "'At their ball. "'It was apparent enough. "'Why, did not the countess, the proud Mercedes, "'the disdainful Catalan, "'who will scarcely open her lips to her oldest acquaintances, "'take your arm, lead you into the garden?' into the private walks, and remain there for half an hour. "'Ah, Baron, Baron,' said Albert, "'you are not listening. What barbarism in a megalomaniac like you!' "'Oh, don't worry about me, Sir Mocker,' said Danglars. Then, turning to the Count, he said, "'But will you undertake to speak to the father?' "'Willingly, if you wish it. "'But let it be done.' "'Explicitly and positively. "'If he demands my daughter, let him fix the day. "'Declare his conditions. "'In short, let us either understand each other or quarrel. "'You understand? No more delay. "'Yes, sir, I will give my attention to the subject. "'I do not say that I await with pleasure his decision, "'but I do await it. "'A banker must, you know, be a slave to his promise.' and Danglars sighed, as M. Cavalcanti had done half an hour before. "'Bravi! Bravo! Brava!' cried Morcerf, 
parrying the banker, as the selection came to an end. Danglars began to look suspiciously at Morcerf, when someone came and whispered a few words to him. "'I shall soon return,' said the banker to Monte Cristo. "'Wait for me. I shall perhaps have something to say to you.' And he went out. The baroness took advantage of her husband's absence to push open the door of her daughter's study, and Monsieur Andrea, who was sitting before the piano with Mademoiselle Eugenie, started up like a jack-in-a-box. Albert bowed with a smile to Mademoiselle Danglars, who did not appear in the least disturbed, and returned his bow with her usual coolness. Cavalcanti was evidently embarrassed. He bowed to Morcerf, who replied with the most impertinent look impossible. Then Albert launched out in praise of Mademoiselle Danglars' voice, and on his regret, after what he had just heard, that he had been unable to be present the previous evening. Cavalcanti, being left alone, turned to Monte Cristo. "'Come,' said Madame Danglars, "'leave music and compliments, and let us go and take tea.' "'Come, Louise,' said Mademoiselle Danglars to her friend. They passed into the next drawing-room where tea was prepared. Just as they were beginning, in the English fashion, to leave the spoons in their cups, the door again opened, and Danglars entered, visibly agitated. Monte Cristo observed it particularly, and by a look asked the banker for an explanation. "'I have just received my courier from Greece,' said Danglars. "'Ah, yes,' said the Count, "'and that was the reason of your running away from us.' "'Yes.' "'How is King Otto getting on?' asked Albert, in the most sprightly tone. Danglars cast a suspicious look towards him without answering, and Monte Cristo turned away to conceal the expression of pity which passed over his features, but which had gone in a moment. "'We shall go together, shall we not?' said Albert to the Count. "'If you like,' replied the latter. Albert could not understand the banker's look, and turned to Monte Cristo, who understood it perfectly. "'Did you see?' said he. "'How he looked at me?' "'Yes,' said the Count. "'But did you think there was anything particular in his look?' "'Indeed I did. And what does he mean by his news from Greece?' "'How can I tell you?' "'Because I imagine you have correspondence in that country.' Monte Cristo smiled significantly. "'Stop,' said Albert. "'Here he comes. I shall compliment Mademoiselle Danglars on her cameo while the father talks to you.' "'If you compliment her at all, let it be on her voice at least,' said Monte Cristo. "'No. Everyone would do that.' "'My dear Viscount,' "'You are dreadfully impertinent.' Albert advanced towards Eugenie, smiling. Meanwhile, Danglars, stooping to Monte Cristo's ear, "'Your advice was excellent,' said he. "'There is a whole history connected with the name Fernand and Yanina.' "'Indeed,' said Monte Cristo. "'Yes, I will tell you all. "'But take away the young man. "'I cannot endure his presence.' "'He is going with me.' "'Shall I send the father to you?' "'Immediately.' "'Very well.' The Count made a sign to Albert, and they bowed to the ladies and took their leave. 
Albert perfectly indifferent to Mademoiselle Donglar's contempt, Monte Cristo reiterating his advice to Madame Donglar on the prudence a banker's wife should exercise in providing for the future. Monsieur Cavalcanti remained master of the field. End of chapter 76「Chapter 77. Haiti. Scarcely had the Count's horses cleared the angle of the boulevard than Albert, turning towards the Count, burst into a loud fit of laughter. Much too loud, in fact, not to give the idea of its being rather forced and unnatural. "'Well,' said he, "'I will ask you the same question which Charles IX put to Catherine de Medicis after the massacre of Saint Bartholomew. How have I played my little part?' "'To what do you allude?' asked Monte Cristo. "'To the installation of my rival at Monsieur Danglars.' "'What rival?' "'Ma foi! What rival? Why, your protégé, Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti.' "'Ah, no joking, Viscount. If you please. I do not patronize Monsieur André, at least not as concerns Monsieur Danglars. "'And you would be to blame for not assisting him, if the young man really needed your help in that quarter. But happily for me, he can dispense with it.' "'What? Do you think he is paying his addresses?' "'I am certain of it.' His languishing looks and modulated tones when addressing Mademoiselle Danglars fully proclaim his intentions. He aspires to the hand of the proud Eugenie. What does that signify, so long as they favour your suit? But it is not the case, my dear Count. On the contrary, I am repulsed on all sides. What? It is so indeed. Mademoiselle Eugenie scarcely answers me and Mademoiselle Darmilly, her confidant, does not speak to me at all. "'But the father has the greatest regard possible for you,' said Monte Cristo. "'He? Oh, no! He has plunged a thousand daggers into my heart. Tragedy weapons, I own, which instead of wounding, sheathe their points in their own handles, but daggers which he nevertheless believed to be real and deadly.' "'Jealousy indicates affection.' "'True, but I am not jealous.' "'He is.' "'Of whom? Of Debray?' "'No, of you.' "'Of me?' "'I will engage to say that before a week is past the door will be closed against me.' "'You are mistaken, my dear Viscount. "'Prove it to me. "'Do you wish me to do so?' "'Yes.' "'Well, I am charged with the commission of endeavouring to induce the Comte de Morcerf "'to make some definite arrangement with the Baron.' "'By whom are you charged?' "'By the Baron himself.' "'Oh,' said Albert, with all the cajolery of which he was capable, "'you surely will not do that, my dear Count.' "'Certainly I shall, Albert, as I have promised to do it.' "'Well,' said Albert, with a sigh, it seems you are determined to marry me. 
"'I am determined to try and be on good terms with everybody at all events,' said Monte Cristo. "'But apropos of Debray, how is it that I have not seen him lately at the Baron's house?' "'There has been a misunderstanding.' "'What, with the Baroness?' "'No, with the Baron.' "'Has he perceived anything?' "'Ah, that is a good joke.' "'Do you think he suspects?' said Monte Cristo with charming artlessness. "'Where have you come from, my dear Count?' said Albert. "'From Congo, if you will.' "'It must be farther off than even that.' "'But what do I know of your Parisian husbands?' "'Oh, my dear Count, husbands are pretty much the same everywhere. An individual husband of any country is a pretty fair specimen of the whole race.' "'But then?' "'What can have led to the quarrel between Danglars and Debray? "'They seem to understand each other so well,' said Monte Cristo with renewed energy. "'Ah, now you are trying to penetrate into the mysteries of Isis, in which I am not initiated. "'When Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti has become one of the family, you can ask him that question.' The carriage stopped. "'Here we are,' said Monte Cristo. "'It is only half-past ten o'clock. Come in.' "'Certainly I will. My carriage shall take you back.' "'No, thank you. I gave orders for my coupe to follow me.' "'There it is, then,' said Monte Cristo, as he stepped out of the carriage. They both went into the house. The drawing-room was lighted up. They went in there. "'You will make tea for us, Baptistine,' said the Count." Baptistine left the room without waiting to answer, and in two seconds reappeared, bringing on a waiter all that his master had ordered, ready prepared, and appearing to have sprung from the ground, like the repasts which we read of in fairy tales. "'Really, my dear Count,' said Morcerf, "'what I admire in you is not so much your riches, for perhaps there are people even wealthier than yourself.' "'Nor is it only your wit, for Beaumarchais might have possessed as much. "'But it is your manner of being served, without any questions, in a moment, in a second. "'It is as if they guessed what you wanted, by your manner of ringing, "'and made a point of keeping everything you can possibly desire in constant readiness.' "'What you say is perhaps true. They know my habits. "'For instance, you shall see.' "'How do you wish to occupy yourself during tea-time?' "'Ma foi, I should like to smoke.' Monte Cristo took the gong and struck it once. In about the space of a second a private door opened, and Ali appeared bringing two chibouks filled with excellent latakia. "'It is quite wonderful,' said Albert. "'Oh, no, it is as simple as possible,' replied Monte Cristo. Ali knows I generally smoke while I am taking my tea or coffee. He has heard that I ordered tea, and he also knows that I brought you home with me. When I summoned him he naturally guessed the reason of my doing so, and as he comes from a country where hospitality is especially manifested through the medium of smoking, he naturally concludes that we shall smoke in company, and therefore brings two chibouks instead of one. And now the mystery is solved.' "'Certainly you give a most commonplace air to your explanation. "'But is it not the less true that you—' "'Ah! But what do I hear?' 
and Morcerf inclined his head towards the door, through which sounds seemed to issue resembling those of a guitar. Ma foi, my dear Viscount, you are fated to hear music this evening. You have only escaped from Mademoiselle Danglars' piano to be attacked by Hades Guzla. Hades, what an adorable name! Ah, there, then really women who bear the name of Hades anywhere but in Byron's poems. Certainly there are. Hedy is a very uncommon name in France, but is common enough in Albania and Epirus. It is as if you said, for example, chastity, modesty, innocence. It is a kind of baptismal name, as you Parisians call it. Oh, that is charming, said Albert. How I should like to hear my countrymen call Mademoiselle Goodness, Mademoiselle Silence, Mademoiselle Christian Charity, only think, then, if Mademoiselle Donglard, instead of being called Claire Marie Eugenie, had been named Mademoiselle Chastity Modesty Innocence Donglard, what a fine effect that would have produced on the announcement of her marriage. Hush, said the Count, do not joke in so loud a tone. Hady may hear you, perhaps. And you think she would be angry? "'No, certainly not,' said the Count, with a haughty expression. "'She is very amiable, then, is she not?' said Albert. "'It is not to be called amiability. "'It is her duty. "'A slave does not dictate to a master.' "'Come, you are joking yourself now. "'Are there any more slaves to be had who bear this beautiful name?' "'Undoubtedly.' "'Really, Count, you do nothing, and have nothing like other people. "'The slave of the Count of Monte Cristo. "'Why, it is a rank of itself in France, "'and from the way in which you lavish money, "'it is a place that must be worth a hundred thousand francs a year.' "'A hundred thousand francs! "'The poor girl originally possessed much more than that.' She was born to treasures in comparison with which those recorded in the Thousand and One Nights would seem but poverty. She must be a princess, then. You are right, and she is one of the greatest in her country, too. I thought so. But how did it happen that such a great princess became a slave? How was it that Dionysius the tyrant became a schoolmaster? The fortune of war, my dear Viscount, the caprice of fortune, that is the way in which these things are to be accounted for. And is her name a secret? As regards the generality of mankind it is, but not for you, my dear Viscount, who are one of my most intimate friends, and on whose silence I feel I may rely, if I consider it necessary to enjoin it, may I not do so? "'Certainly, on my word of honour. "'You know the history of the Pasha of Yanina, do you not?' "'Of Ali Tepelini? Oh, yes. "'It was in his service that my father made his fortune. "'True, I had forgotten that.' "'Well, what is Edi to Ali Tepelini?' "'Merely his daughter.' "'What? The daughter of Ali Pasha?' "'Of Ali Pasha and the beautiful Vasiliki.' "'And your slave?' 
ma foi yes but how did she become so why simply from the circumstance of my having bought her one day as i was passing through the market at constantinople wonderful really my dear count you seem to throw a sort of magic influence over all in which you are concerned when i listen to you existence no longer seems reality but a waking dream now i am perhaps going to make an imprudent and thoughtless request but say on but uh, since you go out with Edi, and sometimes even take her to the opera well i think i may venture to ask you this favor you may venture to ask me anything well then my dear count present me to your princess i will do so but on two conditions i accept them at once the first is that you will never tell anyone that i have granted the interview very well said albert extending his hand i swear i will not the second is that you will not tell her that your father ever served hers i give you my oath that i will not enough viscount you will remember these two vows will you not but i know you to be a man of honour the count again struck the gong ali reappeared tell haiti said he that i will take coffee with her and give her to understand that i desire permission to present one of my friends to her ali bowed and left the room now understand me said the count no direct questions my dear morcerf if you wish to know anything tell me and i will ask her agreed ali reappeared for the third time and drew back the tapestried hanging which concealed the door to signify to his master and albert that they were at liberty to pass on let us go in said monte cristo albert passed his hand through his hair and curled his moustache then having satisfied himself as to his personal appearance followed the count into the room the latter having previously resumed his hat and gloves ali was stationed as a kind of advanced guard and the door was kept by the three french attendants commanded by mirtho haidi was awaiting her visitors in the first room of her apartments which was the drawing-room her large eyes were dilated with surprise and expectation for it was the first time that any man except monte cristo had been accorded an entrance into her presence she was sitting on a sofa placed in an angle of the room with her legs crossed under her in the eastern fashion and seemed to have made for herself as it were a kind of nest in the rich indian silks which enveloped her near her was the instrument on which she was just been playing it was elegantly fashioned and worthy of its mistress on perceiving monte cristo she arose and welcomed him with a smile peculiar to herself expressive at once of the most implicit obedience and also of the deepest love monte cristo advanced towards her and extended his hand which she as usual raised to her lips albert had proceeded no farther than the door where he remained rooted to the spot being completely fascinated by the sight of such surpassing beauty beheld as it was for the first time and of which an inhabitant of more northern climes could form no adequate idea 
"'Whom do you bring?' asked the young girl in Romaic of Monte Cristo. "'Is it a friend, a brother, or a simple acquaintance, or an enemy?' "'A friend,' said Monte Cristo in the same language. "'What is his name?' "'Count Albert. It is the same man whom I rescued from the hands of the banditti at Rome.' "'In what language would you like me to converse with him?' Monte Cristo turned to Albert. "'Do you know modern Greek?' asked he. "'Alas, no,' said Albert. "'Nor even ancient Greek, my dear Count. Never had Homer or Plato a more unworthy scholar than myself.' "'Then,' said Haydée, proving by her remark that she had quite understood Monte Cristo's question and Albert's answer, then i will speak either in french or italian if my lord so wills it monte cristo reflected one instant you will speak in italian said he then turning towards albert it is a pity you do not understand either ancient or modern greek both of which haiti speaks so fluently the poor child will be obliged to talk to you in italian which will give you but a very false idea of her powers of conversation. The Count made a sign to Haiti to address his visitor. "'Sir,' she said to Morcerf, "'you are most welcome as the friend of my lord and master.' This was said in excellent Tuscan, and with that soft Roman accent which makes the language of Dante as sonorous as that of Homer. Then, turning to Ali, she directed him to bring coffee and pipes, and when he had left the room to execute the orders of his young mistress, she beckoned Albert to approach nearer to her. Monte Cristo and Morcerf drew their seats towards a small table, on which were arranged music, drawings, and vases of flowers. Ali then entered bringing coffee and chibouks. As to Monsieur Baptistin, this portion of the building was interdicted to him. Albert refused the pipe which the Nubian offered him. "'Oh, take it, take it,' said the Count. "'Haiti is almost as civilized as a Parisian. The smell of an Havana is disagreeable to her, but the tobacco of the East is a most delicious perfume, you know.' Ali left the room. The cups of coffee were all prepared, with the addition of sugar which had been brought for Albert. Monte Cristo and Haiti took the beverage in the original Arabian manner, that is to say, without sugar. Haiti took the porcelain cup in her little slender fingers, and conveyed it to her mouth with all the innocent artlessness of a child when eating or drinking something which it likes. At this moment two women entered, bringing salvers filled with ices and sherbet, which they placed on two small tables appropriated to that purpose. "'My dear host,' "'And you, signora,' said Albert, in Italian, "'excuse my apparent stupidity. "'I am quite bewildered, "'and it is natural that it should be so. "'Here I am in the heart of Paris, "'but a moment ago I heard the rumbling of the omnibuses "'and the tinkling of the bells of the lemonade cellars, "'and now I feel as if I were suddenly transported to the east, "'not such as I have seen it, but such as my dreams have painted it. Oh, signora, if I could but speak Greek, your conversation added to the fairy scene which surrounds me would furnish an evening of such delight. 
as it would be impossible for me ever to forget. I speak a sufficient Italian to enable me to converse with you, sir, said Hedy quietly, and if you like what is Eastern, I will do my best to secure the gratification of your tastes while you are here. On what subject shall I converse with her? said Albert in a low tone to Monte Cristo. Just what you please. You may speak of her country, and of her youthful reminiscences. Or, if you like it better, you can talk of Rome, Naples, or Florence. Oh, said Albert, it is of no use to be in the company of a Greek if one converses just in the same style as with a Parisian. Let me speak to her of the East. Do so, then, for all of themes which you could choose that will be the most agreeable to her taste. Albert turned towards Haiti. "'At what age did you leave Greece, Signora?' asked he. "'I left it when I was but five years old,' replied Haiti. "'And have you any recollection of your country?' "'When I shut my eyes and think, I seem to see it all again. The mind can see as well as the body. The body forgets sometimes, but the mind never forgets.' "'And how far back into the past do your recollections extend?' "'I could scarcely walk when my mother, who was called Vasiliki, which means royal,' said the young girl, tossing her head proudly, "'took me by the hand, and after putting in our purse all the money we possessed, we went out, both covered with veils, to solicit alms for the prisoners, saying, "'He who giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord.' Then, when our purse was full, we returned to the palace, and without saying a word to my father, we went into the convent, where it was divided amongst the prisoners. "'And how old were you at that time?' "'I was three years old,' said Hedy. "'Then you remember everything that went on about you from the time when you were three years old?' said Albert. "'Everything.' "'Count!' said Albert in a low tone to Monte Cristo. Do allow the Signora to tell me something of her history. You prohibited my mentioning my father's name to her, but perhaps she will allude to him of her own accord in the course of the recital, and you have no idea how delighted I should be to hear our name pronounced by such beautiful lips. Monte Cristo turned to Haiti and with an expression of countenance which commanded her to pay the most implicit attention to his words, he said in Greek, "'Tell us the fate of your father, but neither the name of the traitor nor the treason.' Haiti sighed deeply, and a shade of sadness clouded her beautiful brow. "'What are you saying to her?' said Morcerf in an undertone. "'I again reminded her that you were a friend, and that she need not conceal anything from you.' Then, said Albert, this pious pilgrimage on behalf of the prisoners was your first remembrance? What is the next? Oh, then I remember, as if it were yesterday, sitting under the shade of some sycamore trees, on the borders of a lake, in the waters of which the trembling foliage was reflected as in a mirror. Under the oldest and thickest of these trees, reclining on cushions, sat my father, my mother was at his feet, and I, 
childlike, I amused myself by playing with his long white beard, which descended to his girdle, or with the diamond hilt of the scimitar attached to his girdle. Then from time to time there came to him an Albanian, who said something to which I paid no attention, but which he always answered in the same tone of voice, either kill or pardon. "'It is very strange,' said Albert, "'to hear such words proceed from the mouth of anyone but an actress on the stage, "'and one needs constantly to be saying to oneself, "'This is no fiction. "'It is all reality, in order to believe it. "'And how does France appear in your eyes, "'accustomed as they have been to gaze on such enchanted scenes?' "'I think it is a fine country,' said Heidi. But I see France as it really is, because I look on it with the eyes of a woman, whereas my own country, which I can only judge of from the impression produced on my childish mind, always seems enveloped in a vague atmosphere which is luminous, or otherwise according as my remembrance of it are sad or joyous. So young, said Albert, forgetting at the moment the Count's command, that he should ask no questions of the slave herself. "'Is it possible that you can have known what suffering is except by name?' Haidy turned her eyes towards Monte Cristo, who, making at the same time some imperceptible sign, murmured, "'Go on.' "'Nothing is ever so firmly impressed on the mind as of the memory of our early childhood.' and with the exception of the two scenes I have just described to you, all my earliest reminiscences are fraught with deepest sadness. "'Speak, speak, signora,' said Albert. "'I am listening with the same intense delight and interest to all you say.' Haidi answered this remark with a melancholy smile. "'You wish me, then, to relate the history of my past sorrows,' said she. "'I beg you to do so,' replied Albert. "'Well, I was but four years old, "'when one night I was suddenly awakened by my mother. "'We were in the palace of Janina. "'She snatched me from the cushions on which I was sleeping, "'and on opening my eyes I saw hers filled with tears. "'She took me away without speaking. "'When I saw her weeping I began to cry too. "'Hush, child!' said she, at other times, in spite of maternal endearments or threats, I had with a child's caprice been accustomed to indulge my feelings of sorrow or anger by crying as much as I felt inclined. But on this occasion there was an intonation of such extreme terror in my mother's voice when she enjoined me to silence, that I ceased crying as soon as her command was given." she bore me rapidly away. I saw then that we were descending a large staircase. Around us were all my mother's servants, carrying trunks, bags, ornaments, jewels, purses of gold, with which they were hurrying away in the greatest distraction. Behind the women came a guard of twenty men, armed with long guns and pistols, and dressed in the costume which the Greeks have assumed since they have again become a nation. You may imagine there was something startling and ominous, said Haidi. 
shaking her head and turning pale at the mere remembrance of the scene in this long life of slaves and women only half aroused from sleep or at least so they appeared to me who was myself scarcely awake here and there on the walls of the staircase were reflected gigantic shadows which trembled in the flickering light of the pine torches till they seemed to reach to the vaulted roof above quick said a voice at the end of the gallery this voice made everyone bow before it resembling in its effect the wind passing over a field of wheat by its superior strength forcing every ear to yield obeisance as for me it made me tremble this voice was that of my father he came last clothed in his splendid robes and holding in his hand the carbine which your emperor presented him he was leaning on the shoulder of his favorite selim and he drove us all before him as a shepherd would his straggling flock my father said haiti raising her head was that illustrious man known in europe under the name of ali tepelini pasha of janina and before whom turkey trembled albert without knowing why started on hearing these words pronounced with such a haughty and dignified accent it appeared to him as if there was something supernaturally gloomy and terrible in the expression which gleamed from the brilliant eyes of haiti at this moment she appeared like a pythoness evoking a spectre as she recalled to his mind the remembrance of the fearful death of this man to the news of which all europe had listened with horror soon said haiti we halted on our march and found ourselves on the borders of a lake my mother pressed me to her throbbing heart and at the distance of a few paces i saw my father who was glancing anxiously around four marble steps led down to the water's edge and below them was a boat floating on the tide from where we stood i could see in the middle of the lake a large blank mass it was the kiosk to which we were going this kiosk appeared to me to be at a considerable distance perhaps on account of the darkness of the night which prevented any object from being more than partially discerned we stepped into the boat i remember well that the oars made no noise whatever in striking the water and when i leaned over to ascertain the cause i saw that they were muffled with the sashes of our palicaras besides the rowers the boat contained only the women my father my mother selim and myself the palicaris had remained on the shore of the lake ready to cover our retreat they were kneeling on the lowest of the marble steps and in that manner intended making a rampart of the three others in case of pursuit our bark flew before the wind why does the boat go so fast asked i of my mother silence child hush we are flying i did not understand why should my father fly he the all-powerful he before whom others were accustomed to fly he who had taken for his device they hate me then they fear me it was indeed a flight which my father was trying to effect i have been told since that the garrison of the castle of janina 
fatigued with long service. Here, Hady cast a significant glance at Monte Cristo, whose eyes had been riveted on her countenance during the whole course of her narrative. The young girl then continued, speaking slowly, like a person who is either inventing or suppressing some feature of the history which he is relating. "'You were saying, Signora,' said Albert, who was paying the most implicit attention to the recital, "'that the garrison of Yanina, fatigued with long service, had treated with the Serasker, Korshid, who had been sent by the Sultan to gain possession of the person of my father. It was then that Ali Tepelini, after having sent to the Sultan a French officer in whom he reposed great confidence, resolved to retire to the asylum which he had long before prepared for himself, and which he called Catafijon, or the Refuge. "'And this officer,' said Albert, "'do you remember his name, Signora?' Monte Cristo exchanged a rapid glance with the young girl, which was quite unperceived by Albert. "'No,' said she, "'I do not remember it just at this moment. "'But if it should occur to me presently, I will tell you.' Albert was on the point of pronouncing his father's name, when Monte Cristo gently held up his finger in token of reproach. The young man recollected his promise, and was silent. It was towards this kiosk that they were rowing, a ground floor ornamented with arabesques, bathing its terraces in the water, and another floor, looking on the lake, was all which was visible to the eye. But beneath the ground floor, stretching out into the island, was a large subterranean cavern, to which my mother, myself, and the women were conducted. In this place were together sixty thousand pouches and two hundred barrels. The pouches contained twenty-five million of money in gold, and the barrels were filled with thirty thousand pounds of gunpowder. Near the barrels stood Selim, my father's favourite, whom I mentioned to you just now. He stood watch day and night, with a lance provided with a lighted slow-match in his hand, and he had orders to blow up everything—kiosk, guards, women, gold, and Ali Tepelini himself—at the first signal given by my father. I remember well that the slaves, convinced of the precarious tenure on which they held their lives, passed whole days and nights in praying crying and groaning. As for me, I can never forget the pale complexion and black eyes of the young soldier, and whenever the angel of death summons me to another world, I am quite sure I shall recognize Selim. I cannot tell you how long we remained in this state. At that period I did not even know what time meant. Sometimes but very rarely my father summoned me and my mother to the terrace of the palace. These were hours of recreation for me, as I never saw anything in the dismal cavern but the gloomy countenances of the slaves and Selim's fiery lance. My father was endeavouring to pierce with his eager looks the remotest verge of the horizon, examining attentively every black speck which appeared on the lake, while my mother, reclining by his side, rested her head on his shoulder, 
and I played at his feet, admiring everything I saw with that unsophisticated innocence of childhood which throws a charm round objects insignificant in themselves, but which in its eyes are invested with the greatest importance. The heights of Pindus towered above us. The castle of Yanina rose while and angular from the blue waters of the lake and the immense masses of black vegetation which, viewed in the distance, gave the idea of lichens clinging to the rocks, were in reality gigantic fir-trees and myrtles. One morning my father sent for us. My mother had been crying all the night, and was very wretched. We found the pasha calm, but paler than usual. "'Take courage, Vasiliki,' said he. "'Today arrives the firman of the master, and my fate will be decided. "'If my pardon be complete, we shall return triumphant to Yanina. "'If the news be inauspicious, we must fly this night.' "'But supposing our enemy should not allow for us to do so?' said my mother. "'Oh, make yourself easy on that head.' said Ali, smiling. Selim and his flaming lance will settle that matter. They would be glad to see me dead, but they would not like themselves to die with me. My mother only answered by sighs to consolations which she knew did not come from my father's heart. She prepared the iced water which he was in the habit of constantly drinking, for since his sojourn at the kiosk he had been parched by the most violent fever, after which she anointed his white beard with perfumed oil and lighted his chibouk, which he sometimes smoked for hours together, quietly watching the wreaths of vapour that ascended in spiral clouds and gradually melted away in the surrounding atmosphere. Presently he made such a sudden movement that I was paralysed with fear. Then, without taking his eyes from the object which had first attracted his attention, he asked for his telescope. My mother gave it to him, and as she did so, looked whiter than the marble against which she leaned. I saw my father's hand tremble. "'A boat! Two! Three! murmured my father. Four. He then arose, seizing his arms and priming his pistols. "'Vasiliki,' said he to my mother, trembling perceptibly, "'the instant approaches which will decide everything. In the space of half an hour we shall know the Emperor's answer. Go into the cavern with Hades.' "'I will not quit you,' said Vasiliki. "'If you die, my lord, I will die with you.' "'Go to Selim,' cried my father. "'Adieu, my lord,' murmured my mother, determining quietly to await the approach of death. "'Take away, Vasiliki,' said my father to his palicaris. As for me, I had been forgotten in the general confusion. I ran toward Ali Tepelini. He saw me hold out my arms to him, and he stooped down and pressed my forehead with his lips. Oh, how distinctly I remember that kiss!' It was the last he ever gave me, and I feel as if it were still warm on my forehead. On descending, 
we saw through the lattice-work several boats which were gradually becoming more distinct to our view. At first they appeared like black specks, and now they looked like birds skimming the surface of the waves. During this time, in the kiosk at my father's feet were seated twenty palicares, concealed from view by an angle of the wall, and watching with eager eyes the arrival of the boats. They were armed with their long guns inlaid with mother-of-pearl and silver, and cartridges in great numbers were lying scattered on the floor. My father looked at his watch, and paced up and down with a countenance expressive of the greatest anguish. This was the scene which presented itself to my view as I quitted my father after that last kiss. My mother and I traversed the gloomy passage leading to the cavern. Selim was still at his post, and smiled sadly on us as we entered. We fetched our cushions from the other end of the cavern, and sat down by Selim. In great dangers the devoted ones cling to each other, and young as I was, I quite understood that some imminent danger was hanging over our heads. Albert had often heard, not from his father, for he never spoke on the subject, but from strangers, the description of the last moments of the vizier of Yanina. He had read different accounts of his death, but the story seemed to acquire fresh meaning from the voice and expression of the young girl and her sympathetic accent and the melancholy expression of her countenance at once charmed and horrified him as to haiti these terrible reminiscences seemed to have overpowered her for a moment for she ceased speaking her head leaning on her hand like a beautiful flower bowing beneath the violence of the storm and her eyes gazing on vacancy indicated that she was mentally contemplating the green summit of the Pindus and the blue waters of the lake of Yanina, which, like a magic mirror, seemed to reflect the sombre picture which she sketched. Monte Cristo looked at her with an indescribable expression of interest and pity. "'Go on,' said the Count in the Romaic language. Haiti looked up abruptly, as if the sonorous tones of Monte Cristo's voice had awakened her from a dream, and she resumed her narrative. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, and although the day was brilliant out of doors, we were enveloped in the gloomy darkness of the cavern. One single solitary light was burning there, and it appeared like a star set in a heaven of blackness. It was Selim's flaming lance. My mother was a Christian, and she prayed. Selim repeated from time to time the sacred words, god is great however my mother had still some hope as she was coming down she thought she recognized the french officer who had been sent to constantinople and in whom my father placed so much confidence for he knew that all the soldiers of the french emperor were naturally noble and generous she advanced some steps towards the staircase and listened they are approaching said she Perhaps they bring us peace and liberty. "'What do you hear, Vasiliki?' said Selim, in a voice at once so gentle and yet so proud. "'If they do not bring us peace, we will give them war. If they do not bring life, we will give them death.' And he renewed the flame of his lance, with a gesture which made one think of Dionysus of Crete. 
but I, being only a little child, was terrified by this undaunted courage, which appeared to me both ferocious and senseless, and I recoiled with horror from the idea of the frightful death amidst fire and flames which probably awaited us. My mother experienced the same sensations, for I felt her tremble. "'Mama, mamma," said I, "'are you really to be killed?' and at the sound of my voice the slaves redoubled their cries and prayers and lamentations. "'My child,' said Vasiliki, "'may God preserve you from ever wishing for that death which today you so much dread.' Then, whispering to Selim, she asked what were her master's orders. "'If he sent me his poniard, it will signify that the emperor's intentions are not favourable, and I am to set fire to the powder.' If, on the contrary, he sent me his ring, it will be a sign that the emperor pardons him, and I am to extinguish the match and leave the magazine untouched. My friend, said my mother, when your master's orders arrive, if it is the poniard which he sends, instead of dispatching us by that horrible death which we both so much dread, he will mercifully kill us with this same poniard, will you not? "'Yes, Vasiliki,' replied Selim tranquilly. Suddenly we heard loud cries, and listening discerned that they were cries of joy. The name of the French officer, who had been sent to Constantinople, resounded on all sides amongst our palicaris. It was evident that he brought the answer of the emperor, and that it was favourable. "'And do you not remember the Frenchman's name?' said Morcerf quite ready to aid the memory of the narrator. Monte Cristo made a sign to him to be silent. "'I do not recollect it,' said Hedy. The noise increased. Steps were heard approaching nearer and nearer. They were descending the steps leading to the cavern. Selim made ready his lance. Soon a figure appeared in the grey twilight at the entrance of the cave, formed by the reflection of the few rays of daylight which had found their way into this gloomy retreat. "'Who are you?' cried Selim. "'But whoever you may be, I charge you not to advance another step.' "'Long live the Emperor,' said the figure. "'He grants a full pardon to the vizier Ali, and not only gives him his life, but restores to him his fortune and his possessions.' My mother uttered a cry of joy, and clasped me to her bosom. "'Stop,' said Selim, seeing that she was about to go out. "'You see, I have not yet received the ring.' "'True,' said my mother. And she fell on her knees, at the same time holding me up towards heaven, as if she desired, while praying to God in my behalf, to raise me actually to his presence. And for the second time, Hades stopped, overcome by such violent emotion that the perspiration stood upon her pale brow, and her stifled voice seemed hardly able to find utterance, so parched and dry were her throat and lips. Monte Cristo poured a little iced water into a glass and presented it to her, saying with a mildness in which was also a shade of command, Courage! Hades dried her eyes and continued, By this time our eyes, habituated to the darkness, had recognized the messenger of the pasha. It was a friend. Selim had also recognized him, but the brave young man only acknowledged one duty, 
which was to obey. "'In whose name do you come?' said he to him. "'I come in the name of our master, Ali Tepelini.' "'If you come from Ali himself,' said Selim, "'you know what you are charged to remit to me.' "'Yes,' said the messenger, "'and I bring you his ring.' At these words he raised his hand above his head to show the token, but it was too far off, and there was no light enough to enable Selim, where he was standing, to distinguish and recognize the object presented to his view. "'I do not see what you have in your hand,' said Selim. "'Approach, then,' said the messenger, "'or I will come nearer to you if you prefer it.' "'I will agree to neither one nor the other.' replied the young soldier. Place the object which I desire to see in the ray of light which shines there, and retire while I examine it. Be it so, said the envoy, and he retired after having first deposited the token agreed on in the place pointed out to him by Selim. Oh, how our hearts palpitated, for it did indeed seem to be a ring which was placed there. But was it my father's ring? That was the question. Selim, still holding in his hand the lighted match, walked towards the opening in the cavern, and aided by the faint light which streamed in through the mouth of the cave, picked up the token. "'It is well,' said he, kissing it. "'It is my master's ring.' And throwing the match on the ground, he trampled on it and extinguished it. The messenger uttered a cry of joy and clapped his hands. At this signal, four soldiers of the Seraska Korshid suddenly appeared, and Selim fell, pierced by five blows. Each man had stabbed him separately, and intoxicated by their crime, though still pale with fear, they sought all over the cavern to discover if there was any fear of fire, after which they amused themselves by rolling on the backs of gold. At this moment my mother seized me in her arms, and hurrying noiselessly along the numerous turnings and windings known only to ourselves, she arrived at a private staircase of the kiosk, where was a scene of frightful tumult and confusion. The lower rooms were entirely filled with Korshid's troops, that is to say with our enemies. Just as my mother was on the point of pushing open a small door, we heard the voice of the pasha sounding in a loud and threatening tone. My mother applied her eye to the crack between the boards. I luckily found a small opening which afforded me a view of the apartment and what was passing within. "'What do you want?' said my father to some people who were holding a paper inscribed with characters of gold. "'What we want,' replied one is to communicate to you the will of his highness. Do you see this ferman? I do, said my father. Well, read it. He demands your head. My father answered with a loud laugh, which was more frightful than even threats would have been, and he had not ceased when two reports of a pistol were heard. He had fired them himself, and had killed two men. The palicares, who were prostrated at my father's feet, now sprang up and fired, and the room was filled with fire and smoke. At the same instant the firing began on the other side, and the balls penetrated the boards all around us, 
Oh, how noble did the Grand Vizier, my father, look at that moment, in the midst of the flying bullets, his scimitar in his hand, and his face blackened with the powder of his enemies. And how he terrified them, even then, and made them fly before him. Selim, Selim, cried he, guardian of the fire, do your duty. Selim is dead, replied a voice which seemed to come from the depths of the earth. And you are lost, Ali. At the same moment an explosion was heard, and the flooring of the room in which my father was sitting was suddenly torn up and shivered to atoms. The troops were firing from underneath. Three or four palicaris fell with their bodies literally ploughed with wounds. My father howled aloud, plunged his fingers into the holes which the balls had made, and tore up one of the planks entire. But immediately, through this opening, twenty more shots were fired, and the flame, rushing up like fire from the crater of a volcano, soon reached the tapestry, which it quickly devoured. In the midst of all this frightful tumult and these terrific cries, two reports, fearfully distinct, followed by two shrieks more heart-rending than all, froze me with terror. These two shots had mortally wounded my father, and it was he who had given utterance to these frightful cries. However, he remained standing, clinging to a window. My mother tried to force the door, that she might go and die with him, but it was fastened on the inside. All around him were lying the palicaris, writhing in convulsive agonies, while two or three, who were only slightly wounded, were trying to escape by springing from the windows. At this crisis, the whole flooring suddenly gave way. My father fell on one knee, and at the same moment twenty hands were thrust forth, armed with sabres, pistols, and poniards. Twenty blows were instantaneously directed against one man, and my father disappeared in a whirlwind of fire and smoke, kindled by these demons, and which seemed like hell itself, opening beneath his feet. I felt myself fall to the ground. My mother had fainted. Hades' arms fell by her side, and she uttered a deep groan. At the same time, looking towards the Count, as if to ask if he was satisfied with her obedience to his commands, Monte Cristo arose and approached her, took her hand and said to her in Romaic, "'Calm yourself, my dear child, and take courage in remembering that there is a God who will punish traitors.' "'It is a frightful story, Count,' said Albert, terrified at the paleness of Hades' countenance. "'And I reproach myself now for having been so cruel and thoughtless in my request.' "'Oh, it is nothing,' said Monte Cristo. Then, patting the young girl on the head, he continued, "'Hady is very courageous, and she sometimes even finds consolation in the recital of her misfortunes.' "'Because, my lord,' said Hady eagerly, "'my miseries recall to me the remembrance of your goodness.' Albert looked at her with curiosity, for she had not yet related what he most desired to know, how she had become the slave of the Count.' Hades saw at a glance the same expression pervading the countenance of her two auditors. She exclaimed, "'When my mother recovered her senses, we were before the Serasker. "'Kill,' said she, "'but spare the honour of the widow of Ali.' 
"'It is not to me whom you must address yourself,' said Khorshid. "'To whom, then?' "'To your new master.' "'Who and where is he?' "'He is here.' And Khorshid pointed out one who had more than any contributed to the death of my father, said Hadi in a tone of chastened anger. Then, said Albert, you became the property of this man? No, replied Hadi. He did not dare to keep us, so we were sold to some slave merchants who were going to Constantinople. We traversed Greece and arrived half dead at the imperial gates. They were surrounded by a crowd of people who opened a way for us to pass, when suddenly my mother, having looked closely at an object which was attracting their attention, uttered a piercing cry and fell to the ground, pointing as she did so to a head which was placed over the gates, and beneath which were inscribed these words, This is the head of Ali Tepelini, Pasha of Yanina. I cried bitterly and tried to raise my mother from the earth, but she was dead. I was taken to the slave market, and was purchased by a rich Armenian. He caused me to be instructed, gave me masters, and when I was thirteen years of age, he sold me to the Sultan Mahmud. "'Of whom I bought her?' said Monte Cristo. "'As I told you, Albert, with the emerald which formed a match to the one I had made into a box for the purpose of holding my hashish pills.' "'Oh, you are good!' "'You are great, my lord,' said Hadi, kissing the Count's hand, "'and I am very fortunate in belonging to such a master.' Albert remained quite bewildered with all that he had seen and heard. "'Come, finish your cup of coffee,' said Monte Cristo. "'The history is ended.'" End of chapter 77「いったいったいったいった。When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.